Hello and welcome back to Metastation for our recap of episode 408, God Complex. This is our last podcast before we go on hiatus for a little while, so we wanted to make it extra special. So we have two guest hosts joining us today. Um, We'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor who is not currently in Mississippi. I'm Elizabeth. I'm a historian slash writer who is in Minnesota. And I'm Sarah. I'm a writer in San Jose, California. And so we're going to go ahead and dive in and we're going to start with the Arcadia half of the storyline. After the funeral, Jasper's like, come on, man, we just got to run an errand. Yeah. And it turns out they have to go get some drugs. Yes. Which like <laughs> also felt very on brand for Bellamy to it just did. be like, I'm turning this car around. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Bellamy's like, I don't approve of you taking drugs, but if you're going to take them, I'm going to be with you. Right. And make sure. <laughs> like, He's I'm going to peak dad friend. Yes. If somebody with an Italian family, Jasper's reaction to a funeral actually felt the most realistic to me because <laughs> funerals with the DePauls are just one long booze run. Yeah. Like, that's it. Someone is always going to the store for more alcohol than dad and our family. <laughs> It's just like consistently just like a revolving door of who's got the beer, who's got the beer. (laughs) And Bellamy comes from like, you know, German Lutheran family. He's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Stand very stoically, very seriously. By ourselves, showing no emotion whatsoever. (laughs) The only good thing you get today is potato tort. (laughs) Shove it down forever and then one day you'll die. Whereas I I suspect that Jaha comes from like... Like Sicilian professional mourners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. He's got all like the theatrics. <laughs> He's like, what I do is funerals. Yeah. <laughs> funerals and cults. <laughs> Can you imagine? Could you imagine Jaha's Tinder profile? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Ask me about funerals and cults. <laughs> I got an ask on Tumblr from somebody who was like, I think kind of a little, maybe like indignant or frustrated on Kane's behalf that Jaha had sort of taken over the task of being the person who was in charge of this funeral. And I just wanted to be like, can you imagine Jaha letting anyone else do this part of the job? Like, this is the part about being (laughs) chancellor he probably misses the most. Right. Seriously. He likes being in front of people. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't want to have to do, like, the hard, messy stuff where you have to go, like, negotiate with grounders. He wants to stand there with a torch and proclaim dramatic Shakespearean words. Like, are you kidding? He probably fought Kane off. <laughs> and Kane's like, whatever. Kane's yeah. like, you know what, dude? You can have this. And he popped his collar and went inside. Yeah. <laughs> with his backpack. <laughs> with his backpack. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think Kane and Jaha have an interesting like the Queen and the Prime Minister like yeah. division of labor happening. Totally, where, like, totally. Hidden yeah. in a dark back room, Kane is doing all of the actual work, and Jaha's <laughs> like, "Let's put on a show." <laughs> okay, new headcanon about the backpack uh, bros is that uh, Bellamy and <laughs> Bellamy and Kane wrote. Yeah, Bellamy and Kane had to like they Rochambeau to see who had to stay outside with Jaha in the backpack, and Bellamy. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, all right, which one of us has to babysit yeah. Jaha? Make sure he doesn't like recruit any of these people right. into his new cult, <laughs> or like, or like throw one of the living people onto the fire yeah. as like a yeah. sacrifice. Yeah. 
the backpack is full of what are you what could you need for any situation jaha could possibly get you into to like rescue everybody else <laughs> and that's what's in the backpack is this all like jaha repellent oh god cult deprogramming yeah yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> There's like a tranquilizer dart. Yeah. Or, or one of those like yeah. tranks. Like the only remaining trank oh, that you used last season. Reaper stick. It's just full of <laughs> reaper sticks. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. full of reaper sticks. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, now that that mystery is solved. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say about Jaha, it's a little bit, you know, you either die the chancellor or live to become Diana Sydney. Yeah. This Ooh. is such a Diana Sydney. That move. is so I true. am of you, the people. I am your voice. Not like Kane, who's off in a back office doing shit. I'm, I'm with you. I speak for yeah. you. Like, I feel your it's pain. It's so great to see him yeah. taking over that Diana Sydney thing. Yeah, you're totally right. You're totally right. Like, and in like a super emotionally manipulative way. Oh yeah. Like Jaha didn't really see. Uh, again, he he's. I I hear you saying the feeling words. <laughs> I hear them. <laughs> But he didn't really seem to have a whole lot of emotional connection to the funeral, but he's got a whole lot of emotional connection to people listening mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. Well, he also, he listed, like, three random people's names. Like, <laughs> yeah. the corpses, like, including blah and blah and blah. And and part of me was like, I bet he just picked, like, these are the three people that Jaha personally knows. Yeah, like, these are the people I interacted with. Like, at first, I kept thinking, like, oh, okay, this is the show's way of reminding us of the three people who died that we met, which is Harper's person and then Mark and Peter. But it wasn't. It was three totally different names. I mean, like, I guess we don't know Harper's guy's name. But, but so so it was this weird choice where it's, like, 18 of our people, including these three, where I was, like, you're, like, that priest who gets hired to come in and perform a funeral who doesn't know the person who died, and so you just say really generic things about, like, now they're in a better place. They were a loving brother. Yeah, or... exactly. He was yeah. beloved by his friends and family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, from, like, the big book of, like, generic preacher quotes. Yeah. Right. Also, just, like, including is a little bit of a removed way to put it. I don't know if I had to give a speech at a, at a funeral if I would be like, lots of people are dead, including. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really feel like how you, how you formulate that sentence. That's not, that's not how you express that. Yeah, including but not limited to these three guys, the names <laughs> I remember. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of sense that, like, students write in a paper to make it imply that they know more than those three things when they right. don't, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, Jaha didn't read the book, you guys. Jaha yeah. didn't read the book. This is why, no matter how sincere he seems, I'm just like, you are a shady motherfucker, and you are playing these people, even when it seems like he's being genuine. I'm trying to actually step up as a leader. It's like, what's your game, Thelonious? You are always up to something. He's very performative. He is. Like, he's oh, so, yeah. He doesn't emote very much as a person. So once Jaha starts putting himself out there and, you know, making these big speeches, there's this level of, like, performativeness to it where you feel like, eh, this is your public face, Jaha. He's yeah. always on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, even back in season one when he had that moment with the crowd where he was like, I lost my son. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to like insult him by saying that that was entirely inauthentic. But I also felt like that was a strategic choice to prove a point to them that they 
that they owed him their consideration to listen to him because he was actually speaking with some moral authority. Even in that, arguably, I would say probably Jaha's most emotionally naked moment, it was also still tactical in a way. Everything he does sort of feels like it has has strategy behind it. Yeah, yeah. He's a consummate politician, and I don't think he even thinks about it. It's yeah. not a consciously manipulative process a lot of the no. time. It's just whether it's who he is or he's so sunk into the job, the optics of what he's saying seem to really play into how he says anything just on a subconscious level. Yeah, like he's, I think he's been a politician for so long that he doesn't know how to turn off that mode. Right, well, it's like with the list, when yeah. you're reading it, out, reading it out in, what, 404 or whatever, right, like, right. he just immediately stepped in and took control, yeah. not really knowing all of the details. Yeah, You know, it yeah. was just, like, an instinct for him. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, it's almost like, <laughs> like, in a weird way, it's like Jaha lost his humanity because he's just too much of a politician now, he doesn't know how to, like, he doesn't even know that he's not sort of genuinely emoting or connecting because right, the only... Cause cause he, he sees it as sincere. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which is why he's always going into cults, because he can't tell the difference between real and fake. <laughs> 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 That's why he's like, I know Cadigan. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he was a crazy motherfucker like me. <laughs> and now, now, of course, so the, here's the problem that they're facing now. Now that he's been proven to be correct, there's going to be no fucking living with Athelinius Jaha. After. <laughs> <laughs> like, see, so see, motherfuckers, I know I was wrong this time, and I know I was wrong this time, and I know I was wrong this time, but this time I was right, and so you can't make fun of me anymore about my cult thing, because this time I was actually correct. And he saved the world. Yeah, and he saved the world. And, and also, and that is like classic, like conspiracy theory slash cult logic. I was wrong 23 other times. That was all, those were all just like mix-ups. This is the real time instead of like, this time right, was a right, fucking exactly. coincidence, you know? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stop Not clock is right twice a day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gaia and Monty did all the work, but that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, my other, my favorite thing about this episode in the kind of like made me laugh way, so is the backpack. And then the other thing is when we never see why they decided to bring Monty along, but then Monty tells Harper like, well, she's like, well, they need a, you know, they need an engineer. So like, okay. First of all, why did they think that on this trip to Polis they would need an engineer for anything? Like, it's not at all clear what they thought that was... And second of all, Jaha is an engineer, so why did they need an engineer? Right, that was the whole reason Monty wasn't on the list. Yeah, because Jaha was was the senior engineer. And then Monty, the only thing that Monty does on the entire trip is read the coin and go, I don't know, riddle maybe? Like that's, <laughs> we're just like, not like, why, not a, not a skill that we knew that Monty had prior to well, this. Well, didn't you say on Tumblr he's an engineer of words? He's an engineer of words. Yes, that's correct. He's an engineer like me. Yeah. It's a farce. He engineered in that he read words and thought about them. <laughs> I can't be too mad about it when it gave us the moment of Jaha triumphantly putting down a coin. Oh my god. Oh my god. That, was, Wait, that was a great Why is it working? And then once Monty figures it out, Jaha takes credit for that. Like, Monty does it and Jaha triumphantly puts it down. Like, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You're totally right. He's like, I was right, it works. Raise your hand if you saw that shot and you immediately were like... Thelonious, that coin is not gonna fucking fit. Like, the second it showed the lock yes. thing, I was like, he can't be that dumb, right? He's a senior engineer. <laughs> no, he's exactly that dumb. 
<laughs> he is that dumb. Well, when we were watching, Elizabeth turned to me and she's like, right when she was putting it in there, she was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. And then it didn't work. And we were like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. like, otherwise that would be the easiest lock to pick. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, just make a mold of it. And right. Turn. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, that is not secure at all. Yeah. Jaha, think like a crazy person. You're so good at this usually. Be more paranoid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, what happened to you? I mean, I do feel like to to circle back to Arcadia, it does feel a little bit like this was and I don't mind it so much because I, I love it when Monty gets to have his day in the sun and I like it when Kane gets to rotate through his children. But I do feel like the main, felt like plot-wise the main reason for Monty going along was to facilitate whatever's happening next with Harper. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, they had and to be separated. Separate them. Yeah. yeah, I think that yeah, the main yeah, thing yeah. is that they had to be separated. That was heartbreaking, the thing with her and Monty at the beginning. I'm very worried about Harper. Yeah, me too. I think they're doing a nice job of showing what happened last week as kind of symptomatic of a longer term, like the cracks are starting to show. There was an interesting moment. I was talking about this a couple days ago on on Twitter. I think Aaron, at least you saw, I don't know if Sarah and Elizabeth did, but the con that Bob is at, somebody asked him a question um, that he answered in a way that was sort of like, sort of interesting, pulled out of context, knowing that we there's so much we don't know about this season, where somebody was asking him about Bellamy's relationship with Harper, and he pretty much said Bellamy doesn't trust her. He, he talked a little bit about like Bellamy having a closer relationship with Miller than he does with Harper, which I think is like I think that's borne yeah. out in the text. But the idea, yeah. but the idea that that pretty definitively he feels like based on. I think his understanding of what that audience knows about what's going on in this season right now, that the Bellamy's trust for Harper was sort of eroded and kind of alluding to the fact that it really had to do with her, like implying, I guess, that Bellamy would think less of her or, or judge her or fault her in some way that I don't feel like the narrative necessarily faulted her for leaving a guy behind in the black rain, which, which felt to me like, I guess the way I read that, which we talked about last time, was in the heat of this sort of chaotic moment of stampede, this guy falls and Harper didn't, you know, she didn't push him down, but she like, she didn't, she did not run right back out and risk her life to save him immediately. And that that's kind of what she's faulting herself for. And not that she like fucked up in a massive way, you know? Um, So it was interesting because it did feel like my read on that, just because it felt like a, it felt like from where we were at in that moment, I was like, wow, it seems really strange to me on the heels of that episode, that that would be something that Bellamy would, that that alone would be a thing that would cause any kind of a rip between Bellamy and Harper. And so I think we got more context for that in this episode where we're seeing the the kind of continued, I guess, Harper unspooling a little bit, putting her on sort of pretty definitively what I think is going to be a very different side. I mean, like Bellamy's at the rave now drinking drug tea and hanging out with Brie again. But like... <laughs> You know, in a big picture way, we all know that's not going to end up being the side that Bellamy chooses and Harper might. And so I feel so this made me sort of feel like maybe this is where there's going to be some pretty definitive rifts popping up between the delinquents based besides just Jasper um, of other characters who we like know and have a relationship with about sort of who's going to do what. So Harper choosing to stay behind and like 
die in Arcadia, you know, even if she doesn't end up dying, like even, but like if she makes that choice and sticks with Jasper's, you know, crew, it's like, okay, well that, I guess that would make sense for why Bellamy would like, that would, that would be a thing that would affect the relationship, I think way more than the Black Rain. I wonder if it's about Monty for Bellamy. Could be. Right? Because... Bellamy and Monty are pretty close. You know, in season three, we had them kind of like checking in. They were the ones left behind after Mount Weather. You know, they sided together with Pike and he's seeing Monty losing Jasper. Like they're all losing Jasper and Harper's Monty's other person. I I feel like it would be in character for Bellamy to carry some resentment for Harper choosing to kind of like leave him behind. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Like, so and it's Bellamy, not about Bellamy, it's about and Bellamy, Bellamy being also, protective of Monty. Yeah, and, and Bellamy also right now, like, in the moment when Bellamy, you know, chooses to party with Jasper, and I, it seems like the implication is in the next episode he's going to be on the, like, fuck it, we're not going to, you know, do not resuscitate side to start with. I mean, like, right now, you know, Bellamy's back to season one Bellamy also in the sense that he thinks that, you know, Octavia hates him, that, you know, that that relation, he, he kind of thinks that he doesn't really have anybody who's going to care that much if he's gone. How he manages to convince himself of that with Clark, I don't know, but, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but like, you know, but like, I think like Bellamy's the kind of person too, where, where like the instant that he is reminded or believes again that him dying is going to hurt someone then he wouldn't do it, you know? And I think may, potentially Harper choosing the other side, like Harper being aware that Monty's going to be hurt by her, is hurt by right, her actions yeah. and her doing it anyway. That's the kind of thing that I think Bellamy, I could see Bellamy just like not understanding. Yeah. But yeah, it was a curious thing for him to say. <laughs> I wish they had given us another episode or so to breathe with this Harper storyline. It, fe- I feel like the turn from fear and grief to, you know, kind of alcohol and, and drowning her sorrows, both, you know, figuratively and literally with the booze. I wish we had one more episode because Harper jumping on the nihilism train this fast feels a little bit like we just need to get her there and less like how would Harper actually respond to this. I could see her going there. But I just feel like it's a little bit fast. Yeah, it was a little bit sudden, you know. I mean, it, and not so much. Yeah. I, it was understandable for her to be drunk. But no, I agree with you. I was a little sort of startled, like, oh, oh, wow, okay, she got like, yeah, to just go that dark, yeah, that yeah. quickly felt a little quick for me. It yeah. was just yeah. too yeah. dark for the Harper we've seen thus far. Oh, along that vein, I did. It's not a huge nitpick, especially because Monty and Harper are in a relationship. But I've noticed, like, we see, we've seen now Harper, we've seen Raven, we've seen Clark choose sex to deal with their emotional problems, which isn't to say that's a bad thing to do, but it veers a little uncomfortable when you start seeing the female characters using sex to deal with problems where we haven't really seen male characters. Although we may be seeing Bellamy doing. Right. Yeah, it, it, it... We kind of see it with Bellamy. Yeah, it depends on how the next episode yeah. picks up. Yeah. 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 Like, because yeah. they left that a little ambiguous, but I could see him going that direction. I think coming hard on the heels of that being my my biggest Octavia Ilian question mark from last episode was just sort of the idea that I think there are things that work about him being the thing that sort of helps push Octavia into that catharsis that she needs. But I do, I felt the same way where it was like, it 
is is sex the like like not that it isn't psychologically realistic that that happened is that the only way that could have happened because it does feel like they go back to that well a lot yeah that's what i mean if you take them all individually case by case you're like sure devoid of all context these incidents all make a perfectly reasonable amount of psychological sense but when you stretch them together as like the show has a consistent pattern of attractive young women going through a you know chunk of storyline where no one has had sex on screen in a while and somebody makes a decision that the way I'm going to deal with my emotional problems is sexual it feels like it isn't it isn't that those moments are psychologically untrue it's just sort of like this is another kind of I think unexamined pattern that plays into some tropes about women and sexuality that I do feel like just Something to, like, watch for. But also just know. repetitive. I mean, it's... And repetitive, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The It's a little bit of a problem of the proliferation of shippy wound-tending moments, you know, where we got, like, mm, three yeah. of them last season. We got one with Kane and Abby at the beginning of this season. At a certain point, it just starts feeling like, okay, do you have another move? You know, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, yeah. think of a new way to convey this is a tender moment between two people because, like... It almost feels like there's so many sex scenes they're supposed to have yeah. in a season. Yeah. And they felt like they needed to get it in somehow. Yeah. And I don't think that that's it. I mean, I yeah. think I think it does make sense. It's just... Because I, I don't... I don't know. None of those... The, all those moments to me felt psychologically earned enough that they didn't feel super exploitative. It's more And they about weren't the, out of character. Yeah, they weren't out of character. And it, yeah, right, exactly. And right. it wasn't like, so it's, so I think it's more just a sense of, at a certain point, the repetition itself becomes more of an issue, right. kind of like in terms of, in terms of like impact and pattern than anything else. And I think we're reaching yeah. the point with the like, you yeah, know, like. the collective. Ex- yeah, exactly. Well, like yeah. distress equals, you know, comfort sex. We're reaching a point, it's like, okay, we hit diminishing returns. Although I will say in... And I don't know if this necessarily helps with the like repetition issue, but it it might it does maybe help a little bit with, you know, Harper's characterization and with Harper and Monty's relationship. Like in their in their defense, that's how Harper and Monty got together. Like the beginning of their relationship that's true. Yeah, was, was like was comfort in a time of great stress and worry and not being and sure. And she right wasn't even it. sure that Oh yeah, it felt accurate for Harper. But then on the pattern, I start to feel like, ooh, we dip into this well a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for the yeah, yeah. female yeah. characters. Yeah. It's not bad in and of itself. Exactly. It's just a sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, we've maybe yeah. seen, that we've hit this beat before. Before. And, you know, we've hit it right. enough times that, you know, like, instead of being in the moment psychologically with that character doing that, you know, you're sort of like remembering the, the other times and it's a little bit like. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say with Bellamy and Brie. Brie initiates That's true. and has to kind true. of push. And then with Raven, Raven also initiates. So it, it ends up being sort of a, well, obviously it takes two to tango. So you've got two people in these sexual encounters. The women initiate. That's true. And Octavia initiates. Yeah. One thing I think um, about Brie specifically that I saw somebody mentioning, I think on, on Twitter or Tumblr that I had forgotten is that Brie is one of the girls that Bellamy slept with in season one. Yeah. She was the yes. threesome girl with yeah. Rama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the sort of paralleling of Brie and Nyla in terms of a person that you slept with before, you have that level of familiarity, intimacy in a certain way. It's a nice little, I think, sort of parallel moment to what Clark was getting from Nyla, which is, and in the end, and she and Bellamy, I think, process, you know, emotional complexity in times of stress very differently. But it felt like a, 
you know, and when you're in these sort of extraordinary circumstances, it's like, okay, so they've set it up where you have somebody where, you know, that relationship on some level already exists and it's different, but it, but I think that that, once I realized like, oh, okay, this is when he slept with before that I think adds another level of in the circumstances that he's in, this makes logical intuitive sense. Well, yeah. And I think, I think one thing you can see in that moment is that, you know, because like Bob is amazing. You can see Bellamy like switch into season one. Bellamy, right. like I was just going to say, yeah. there's some really interesting parallels this, this episode yeah. to, or like callbacks yeah. right, to yeah. season one Bellamy and how he's different yeah but i mean even just like in 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 his expression in his body language the way he starts carrying himself he puts on that sort of like cocky asshole version of bellamy right. he's got this persona that yeah he's kind of like very self-consciously stepping yes back he's like into. slips back into it and you can see him do that when brie um approaches him and i think that's really deliberate you know and that's telling you you know it's also sort of telling us like this is bellamy going back into that psychological place that he was in um in right. season one that was very much driven by by like he was really being driven by fear and uncertainty and, and a need for control yeah exactly yeah and so and so you know we got the whatever the hell we want earlier but i think that you know the callback to the it being brie again i think it had you know it was maybe less about the fact that he had a relationship with with her before and more about the fact that seeing her maybe kind of reminded him of a version of himself that he could slip back into which me. is also like essentially what jasper was talking to yeah. him about yeah like, yeah yeah like, yeah the reiteration of whatever the hell we want is really key there it's sort of like hey remember when you were a person who wasn't burdened by feeling this sense of responsibility which is funny because that wasn't even true of bellamy at the time when he said that you know like right like whatever the <laughs> hell we want was like the world's biggest lie yeah <laughs> like, coming from bellamy at that point <laughs> like, whatever the hell we want i.e just do what i tell you yeah about. exactly <laughs> except if it's the, not the thing that i actually want you to do in which case stop yeah but <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to say before we forget, before I forget, rather, I hope we see more of Brie just because the only two times we've ever seen her are just to sleep with Bellamy. It feels, it, it edges a, a toe into, again, that thing of like, uh, I don't mind it in the individual, but on the meta larger level. I would rather we not have a character who literally only shows up to sleep with Bellamy <laughs> and then disappears again. I have a feeling yeah. that is probably what will happen, though, because I think she's only there to be like, hi, I have Clark's hairdo. Right? <laughs> I am a very unsubtle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh God, the haircut. That was, that was something. And there was two, because there was her, she had Clark's hairdo, and there was a girl sitting down on the other side and the, like, non-partying people who looked like... Exactly yeah. like Clark. Yeah, she also had like there's like hair. Clark's all over the place. It was very not very very. Right? <laughs> what I really hope we get, which almost certainly will not happen, but would, but would be awesome, is if the next episode we come back to Bellamy and he's in bed having his threesome again, but the other person is a guy, just to like casually right. establish bisexual. Let's Bellamy. go for it. Great. I'm for it. <laughs> I'm sure it won't happen, but it yeah. would be super cool. It would be amazing. <laughs> Should we just keep talking about Bellamy for a while? We keep, like, <laughs> veering all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I know Elizabeth has much to say about... Right, about Bellamy and Jasper's weed run. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and just how annoyed Bellamy was when he found out Jasper was trying to trick him into having fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Because it is kind of like, Bellamy, how did you convince these kids you were cool? I know, like, seriously. <laughs> like, that was the greatest con of them all. Yeah. <laughs> is that like like four days that you convinced yeah. everyone in the dropship camp that you were cool? <laughs> it's a good thing Clark called you on your bullshit before you gave yourself away. Right. <laughs> so what I what struck me about his conversations with Jasper is that Jasper was really the first delinquent really to pull Bellamy out of his kind of like rawr protect Octavia mode. He was, I'm I'm like trying to think of how to put it, but it was like, you know, Jasper was his first test of leadership. That's true. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he was trying, he was threatening to like kill him. Yeah. You know, and he told Clark, like, you don't have the guts to make the hard choices. And then he essentially realized later on that same day that he was the one who couldn't do it. And then by the end of season one, Bellamy was essentially sacrificing himself to save Jasper. Right? Like he offered to trade places saving himself. Yeah. Yeah. With Jasper when Murphy like had him contained. I feel like Jasper is a really important delinquent to Bellamy because he was the first their whole partnership in Mount Weather. Yes. Yeah, the partnership in Mount Weather Bellamy went on that first rescue mission that Clark made him go on, you know, to like to save to save Jasper. Jasper. Yeah, that's true. Like it's always, you know, like Jasper is kind of the next one after Octavia that he's yeah. tried to protect over and over and over again. And I think it's interesting that now both Jasper and Octavia are like stop it. I think also Jasper and Bellamy are the two people who bear I don't want to say the most guilt because obviously Clark feels incredibly guilty, but there's an intimacy to their Mount Weather guilt. Bellamy remembers the yeah. faces of the yeah. people. Yeah, well, and Bellamy knew Maya. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for them, I think for Jasper and Bellamy, there's there's a certain the way they experienced Mount Weather is so closely tied together and so linked that Jasper might be the only person who. Not about the massacre so much, but specifically about Mount Weather, which is the guilt of Mount Weather led to Bellamy agreeing to take part in the massacre. Jasper's the only person who can say to him, yeah, you fucked up, dude. You fucked up. And what good does it do to rake yourself over the cold? Think about Jasper in the first episode of season three, you know, drunk, and he like smacks Bellamy in the face when Bellamy tries to talk to him. He's still so angry at him. For Mount Weather. And now, yeah, you're totally right. I hadn't thought about that, but you're totally right. That Jasper's the only one who could say, like, you, you did those things. You need to stop dwelling on it. Right. Well, like, the only but one of the few. Like, something you guys, I know, have talked about is, like, you know, so, like, you had Kane at the beginning of the season being, like, Bellamy, just, like, do better. Yeah. Right? Like, you can make up for what you've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had Jaha being, like, well, as long as you meant well, like, (laughs) nothing else matters. Right, right. Right? And Bellamy wasn't, he he clearly didn't buy it from Mm -hmm. either of them. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Jasper's just kind of like, well, fuck it. Mm-hmm. In the end, none of it matters. Just, you know, like, you've got to let go. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, now, <laughs> I have, now I have Lincoln Park stuck in my head. In the end, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Jasper would definitely listen to oh, Lincoln Park. Oh, oh yeah. As soon as that other song ended at the party, it was definitely yeah. Lincoln Park playing. Oh, my God. <laughs> You know, this is this is very brand for me, but I was going to say it's it's sh- I've seen Charles Pike all over this season even <laughs> when they're not referencing him directly, and this is another moment where it's shades of Pike. 
people t say to Bellamy, you don't need to feel bad. And it's like they're speaking Greek. He doesn't get it. Right, just, he doesn't. That's true, confused. and that's where Kane couldn't get through to Bellamy after the massacre, and Pike could, because Pike is like, you feel like shit. Yeah, no, yeah. He, he actually, like, understood, yeah. Pike and Jasper both say to him, yeah, you fucked up. You should feel shitty. And then Jasper takes it one level more of, like, but is feeling shitty helping you anymore? Yeah. What right. are you doing with that feeling shitty? Like, is it doing anything for you, for the rest of us? Let it rest right. and be done. Yeah. Well, and like... <laughs> Sad cat song! <laughs> and so, like, when I first watched the episode, I was kind of assuming that, like, Bellamy going to the rave, even with his, like, dad backpack or whatever, um, was supposed to be kind of, like, rock-bottom Bellamy, right? Yeah. Like, Bellamy giving up. Yeah. But, like, when I watched it again, I don't know... If it's that, like, it's yeah. not necessarily a positive step for his character, mm -hmm. but he is at least now making a genuine effort to put stuff behind him. That is true. Like, he yeah. spent every episode up until that moment carrying every single bad thing he's ever done. Yeah. And Kane told him, gave him one way to fix it, and Jaha gave him a way to fix it, and he didn't listen. He's letting go. He's letting go of Octavia. Yeah. He's letting go of Jasper. He's letting go of Clark. He's yeah. Like, and so, like, this is maybe his first version of trying to do that, and it's and it's like a false start. But right, it is like a start. I don't I don't know if it's necessarily self destructive the way I saw it initially. Right, right. I don't or think it's, it's a just good a matter. Thing. I think it's just maybe a matter of like he doesn't yet know what to replace that with, and the this is the right. first thing that's offered to him. But it's like you do. He has to put that stuff down. Somehow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is the backpack a metaphor? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Responsibility. <laughs> oh my god, it totally is. Okay, can you imagine though if he doesn't take it off to have sex with Brie? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> okay, he's just like, listen, you never know. You, you <laughs> never know. <laughs> I really wish you guys were here to see what Aaron just did in her chair. <laughs> there may have been a slight amount of thrusting. <laughs> oh my god. Oh god. podcast and not like a tv show or youtube show <laughs> you can't you guys gestures. we need to do some time for a special feature do like a video podcast where we can see all the ridiculous faces oh no no no, 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 my God. no 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 never not happening hard pass <laughs> i was gonna say something about kind of jasper and bellamy and their the nature of of forgiving versus kind of moving on Bellamy, so much of, of wanting redemption has involved almost needing other people to forgive him. Yeah. He needs Nyla's forgiveness. He needs Jasper's. He needs Clark's. He needs different people's forgiveness. And it's never internally, I need to be able to come to, you know, come to terms with what I have done. 
and know that there are people who will never forgive me for what right, I and that you don't yeah. have to. You it, that doesn't mean that you aren't allowed to release yourself from those feelings. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, isn't that what Clark's whole forgiveness thing was? Is that it's yeah. not for other people; it's for yourself. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We get that back in season one when Vera is talking to Marcus after the calling. Um, and she says the same thing to him. Don't worry about God forgiving you. Like, God will forgive you no matter what. That's not the problem. The problem is, can you forgive yourself? Yeah. That is where yeah. you are stuck. Now that we're far enough into the season that you can kind of take these points along the way of, you know, a felony's journey and kind of string them into something that looks like an arc and make some assumptions about where it might be headed. I do think that it's, it's noteworthy, the different, all of the different ways that people talk to Bellamy about, I guess I'm really going back to season three, two in that beach conversation that he has with Clark, like all of the different ways that people talk to Bellamy about what forgiveness is. And, and what they're really saying all of those different times is they're saying something that's really about themselves. Yeah. Clark connects with him because, like, Clark Clark works in a similar way in terms of this sort of inability to, like, let go of the things that she's holding on to. But, like, Clark is also talking in that moment about herself. Kane is talking about himself and what he's trying to do. He has spent this whole entire time trying to turn the page and trying to stop thinking about being season one Kane. And that's part of why it's so jarring and painful when Ina Bellamy brings up Octavia is because Kane's whole arc has been shaped by, you know, trying to turn the page and not look back. And then when Jaha is like, yeah, but your intention was good. What Jaha's really saying is, yes, I know a bunch of people are dead, but I was trying to save everybody and be their leader. And that's always what I was trying to do. And so I can sleep at night just fine because in my heart, I know all this time I've been trying to save my people. And and if there's collateral damage along the way, like, what are you going to do about it? You know, so everyone is, like, talking to Bellamy about here's what forgiveness looks like. And they're really saying, like, or t- in, in, a, in a way that's, like, you know, I know something about you or here's what you should do or here's what forgiving yourself would mean for you. But they're really talking about themselves. And so sometimes it sticks and sometimes it doesn't. But I, I think what's interesting about Jasper, like you said, Elizabeth, Jasper blamed Bellamy so much and held on to so much anger and resentment about the things that happened at Matt Weather and Bellamy's responsibility for that. And so Jasper being able to forgive Bellamy and let that go says something real about like if Jasper can can get past Mount Weather and want to be bros with Bellamy again like that means that that's a thing that people can do you know like that means it's possible in a concrete way also importantly is the fact that Bellamy didn't do anything to earn that yeah from Jasper yeah yeah yeah. right he Uh didn't make some grand you know like he didn't save him he didn't Jasper they didn't have some big talk he didn't like explain himself Jasper got over it and Bellamy's whole struggle this season has been like he wants to earn forgiveness but he feels like his sins are so momentous there's literally no amount of people he can save to earn it not only does not only did he did he not earn it did we not see him earn it anyway Jasper actually basically says to him like you didn't earn shit but you get it anyway right right exactly we're cool right you didn't earn this I'm just giving you this because I'm choosing to so I think that's maybe yeah Jasper was on fire this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
He uh, he was. I think it's because Jasper forgiving Bellamy is part of Jasper's journey. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. It's a thing that Jasper needs. Again, I mean, Jasper, like everyone else, is telling Bellamy about himself when he says, you know, you just have to let let it, you have to let all that stuff go. You It happened, it's the past, and think forward. That's what Jasper's doing. And I think this, you know, that that's powerful for Bellamy because, again, he just never thought that you're, he was allowed to do that. Right. Well, and Jasper, I feel like, had some really profound moments this episode because, yeah. you know, like when he said, we're living on borrowed time anyway, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, so I don't know if anyone else knows, but Jasper was wearing the shirt I think he was wearing in the yes, pilot. Yes, he was. Uh-huh. He was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like Jasper literally almost died the day they arrived. Yes. And he was, his character was supposed to die right. in the pilot. Right. So and then Jasper, they the character, him back. has been living on borrowed time, like... The entire time. Ever since. And you yeah. just, you get yeah. this sense that he, like, he feels that. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. he should have, he could have died half a dozen times by now. Yeah. And he's just, you know, like, he realizes he's not owed any more future time. And he's accepting that. Mm-hmm. There's a show called Generation Kill, which is about the uh, first invasion of Iraq. And there's a character in it who, named Ray, who essentially, he knows what movie he's in. He understands what's happening. And I feel like there's a level to Jasper where, and I have to give all the credit to Devin. He, I, uh, he is amazing. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. Jasper feels like he's been given the script of no one else. None of the other characters are aware they're in a TV show. Except for Jaha. Jaha knows. And he has. Jaha knows. Okay, Jaha does know. Jaha and Jasper live on top of the fourth wall together. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. but with Jasper, there's this sense of like, I have the scripts, I know we're all screwed, and if I don't laugh about it, if I, I'm just gonna lose it. So you guys need not to, you just can't poke at my humor here, because this is how I'm keeping on top of the fact that I know we're all gonna die. And I think there's, there's an interesting resonance to that. Yeah, Devin did such a good job kind of veering between like, anger and mm-hmm. resignation and then just like straight out comic relief mm-hmm. well like all at once tears in his eyes oh, yeah. the whole scene he, i mean yeah. he's like he's so good at playing the the at, like keeping that edge to his playfulness like even in the moments yeah yeah the right like when moments, he's being funny yeah you know there's like a darkness there's like levels yeah. in that, like the darkness in there which is like i mean that is totally like kudos to Devin. Yeah. For, for playing. And, like, he and Bob together are also really great. Like, they play off each other Yeah, really, they've really always well. had such oh, good yeah. chemistry. Jasper made a joke about, or Bob, Bellamy said, like, I don't want to have to carry your body back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and God, that felt yeah. like a really horrible moment of, I hope not, foreshadowing. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God, yeah. no! Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a monster. That's <laughs> what I'm No, I thought the same thing. I'm, I'm very worried about Jasper. Oh, yeah, me too. Thing. Oh, yeah. With every passing episode, my conviction that Jasper is going to die becomes more solidified, and my big open question is just, are they going to do right by the arc of his character in terms of his mental illness in a way where the message that they're sending is not just something really kind of soul-crushingly nihilistic about there being no point in living if you're depressed. And I actually feel, I will say, watching the episode a second time and then talking to you just now, what you were saying about borrowed time, Elizabeth, I, I feel like, to me, it's like this is the beginnings of the, the first kind of faint glimmers of a version of a Jasper death story that I think 
I could feel less. Not, I think I would never be okay with it, but I, but I think there's a way to do it where like, if it's, if it's not, it was not an act of self-harm brought about by his depression in a way that sort of sends this message that that is the inevitable end of all of those stories, which is something that I do feel like is really troubling. If it becomes about an acceptance of the fact, like if it's about the borrowed time thing, if it's about like there's so many terrible things that could have happened, we get as much time as we get and we never know how much that time is and he's not fighting it. I feel like in a, in a way, and I don't know if I'm explaining this well, it feels like there's there's a slightly, there's more agency, I guess, in that construction of it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. I know what you're saying. That makes sense yeah, to me. Yeah, he's not embracing it because he wants to die. Yeah. He's, he's, embra- he's embracing the end because he knows it's coming. Right, and he wants to be, he wants to live as, as like, much and as... I don't know, but, like, happily isn't the right word, but, I mean, like, in a weird way, he's embracing life, like, radically so, you know? Right. like, yeah, like oh, he yeah. was talking about, like, this beautiful planet. Beautiful yeah. planet, you know? Yeah. It's like, I'm, it, well, I mean, he's just sort of like, I have only so much time of existence and sensation and being, and I want to right. be and exist and feel as vividly as I can during that time. Yeah. Then, which is, in many Agreed. ways, kind of the opposite of of su- of being suicidal. Yes, yes. When you're suicidal, you don't really. It's not that you want to die. It's just that you want to stop feeling. You just want to. You turn don't want to off. live. There's a very real difference. Yeah, and so yeah. And that he's the opposite of that now. So I think there's maybe something like like watching that, like watching Jasper yeah. now, like you know, he has changed. He since has the first changed. Episode. Yeah, there's something fundamentally like, first different episode of this in his the way that he's yeah. sort of like yeah, we're going to die, just accept it. It's a completely different way from the Jasper who put the gun to his head in the first episode. I've talked about this a lot with my best friend Lauren because we're both people who have dealt with, you know, suicidal ideation and, and very serious depression. And I think for me, the thing I want for Jasper, especially because I feel like he is going to die, is we've seen Jasper come to a point where because he knows there's a deadline he's found a reason to live again. Yeah, yeah. There's only so much time so I can live in the space I am allowed. Yeah. I want Jasper to find something worth dying for again. I want Jasper to have this hero moment where all of a sudden, even if it's the moment where he does choose his own death, it's not because he wants to die. It's because he's found that life has meaning even if it's, I make this choice and I save a bunch of people and it's no longer about, I I just need Jasper to find a reason that his life is worthwhile. And I think like that's maybe the the key thing, you know, so Jasper isn't, isn't, is sort of embracing life in a way, but the other, the the sort of dark undercurrent to Jasper now, that the issue I think now is that he's doing so in a way where he's actively trying not to save people. He's trying to recruit people into feeling the way he does, which is what he's trying exactly, to do with Bellamy. Yeah. And so he's kind of, he's in a way he's trying to get people, other people to embrace their coming death kind of semi-nihilistically the way that he is. Exactly, so it's, it's yeah. more, it's not, it's hedonistic. It's not really about meaning of life. It's just about like more sort of a hedonistic yeah. kind of life. So I think, yeah. So I think the one reason I really like that idea of like a finding a reason to die, Sarah, is because what that suggests is that, the real transformation, you know, the the final step that Jasper would go to is to recognize, like, not just that, like, 
sensation being alive is something to kind of grab onto with both hands yeah, as long as exactly. you have it. But rather that life itself is something to be protected and cherished. And that therefore, like, he recognizes that life, period, ever, just being alive, people being alive, anyone, is important enough that he would be willing to do something to sacrifice to make sure that someone else can keep going, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's where I feel like the, um, the piece that's missing in the way that he is sort of pushing back with Bellamy is that I think, you know, he, he looks at Bellamy and he sees somebody who is, who is weighed down by, you know, giant backpack. (laughs) (laughs) And a metaphorical level. (laughs) Literal and metaphorical backpacks of Bellamy Link. (laughs) You have to write that down. Like, he looks at Bellamy and he sees somebody who, like, can't let go of, like, not just, like, can't let go of all of the things that he's done and all the things he's been through, but this sort of constant impulse that um, that Bellamy and that so many of them have to always be fighting, to always be pushing. Right. You know? and, and so he looks at Bellamy and he sees somebody who has no capacity to, like, enjoy life because he is fighting so hard. And Jasper views that as lesser because... Jasper's sort of all in this living in the present moment because we only have, you know, like 10 days left kind of mindset. And so he feels like that that darkness, that unhappiness, that heaviness, that weight, that pressure, that responsibility is something that Bellamy should be freed from because I think that he's making he's making a different kind of calculation about what makes a life worthwhile and he looks at Bellamy and he's like, "Well, you're like, what is the point of having this life if you are not enjoying it?" And the point is life the point is life matters yeah. life is valuable you know and and what bellamy does with the you know heavy dark things that he carries around on his shoulders and with all of the burdens that are on him bellamy is driven by a desire to save other people's lives and that has made him fundamentally unhappy because it's put him in a situation where terrible things happen to him all the time and jasper trying to alleviate him of that burden is asking bellamy to give up the thing that makes bellamy qualitatively bellamy well, and here's yeah. the other thing that just occurred to me, too, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about this until you were talking about the funeral scene, and I was thinking, like, you know, Jasper looks at Bellamy and he sees a guy who goes to a funeral wearing a backpack full of survival gear. Like, if Jasper's a sort of, like, extreme end of, like, fuck it, I'm going to wander around miles from camp without a, uh, a chem tent, Bellamy's the other end of the extreme where it's, like, you're 10 feet away from going inside and you have a tent on your back, like a totally ridiculous. But the, but when I was thinking about that, I realized like the, the arc of Bellamy for this episode and actually maybe for the season or at least this section of the season, because the striking thing about that first scene is that there's that crowd of people at the, at the funeral and then there's Bellamy standing all alone. So Bellamy starts the episode completely alone and he ends the episode, you know, in a crowd at a party but aside from Jasper and Nyla, it's not really people he knows. Because I like, yeah. you know, like Harper's yeah. kind of nearby. Yeah. But he's not. He doesn't really interact a lot, but he's at least back yeah. integrated he's, into. He's with people, but they're not necessarily his, like, his people. people. But I just thought it was interesting because I was thinking as you're talking, Claire, like the other thing that that Bellamy's choices have done, and you know, on, on all levels, his his need to protect people, people, his need to. You know, like all of this stuff that he's been and, and his backpack full of guilt. You know, the, one thing it's really done is that it's isolated him. You know, it's like pulled him away. He's sort of like wrapped up in yeah. his in his right. guilt, and it's made him 
made it difficult for him to sort of like get out of that and connect. And so I think maybe what we're seeing in that, like this was Bellamy. So, so, and the, and the previous episode, Bellamy spent like literally alone in a Rover the entire time, you know? So like Bellamy has been getting progressively more and more isolated um, over the course of the season. You know, he starts out with everybody um, and he, and he sort of slowly loses people as he goes along, you know, so first Octavia goes and then he leaves Clark, you know, he leaves Clark to go back to Arcadia and then he's alone in the Rover for an entire episode and then he starts this episode all alone. Um, and then he reconnects with Jasper, who, like you said, is one of the yeah. first people, one of the first delinquents, one of the first of the hundred that he really connected with. And then Jasper brings him back into the crowd. And I'm pretty sure if we look... Probably most of those kids at the party were delinquents. Right. Like, I'm sure, like, almost uh-huh. all of oh, the yeah. remaining delinquents are in there. So he's, and, and he's back to season one Bellamy. So he's, like, going gone back to the beginning. And think about right. him on the arc after Octavia goes to the skybox, alone in his apartment. Right. The Bellamy back to completely alone, solitary, back through the delinquents party Bellamy. And so right. I think maybe what's happening is, like, we're seeing Bellamy having gotten more and more isolated, sort of psychologically... And, and in every other possible way, because of his guilt and this, this stuff that he's carrying, and this is his journey back right. into connection and back into integration, maybe. I think so, too, yeah. It was Clark who really who pulled, pulled Bell- him into... Into who he really is, yes, right? Because yes. early season one, Bellamy is not really Bellamy. No. Right? Like, that Bellamy, he doesn't actually go to parties. No. He doesn't like <laughs> Right? Like, he was just like, this is what teenage delinquents will follow. Right, exactly. So that is who yeah. I'll be. Yeah. He's like, like, he's like going back to his high school reunion and being like, I'm yeah. a cool guy now. Or not yeah. even that, he's like going to a new high school. By the way, right. I just did another great gesture that you guys Yeah, yeah, it was, it was really great, like, cowboy walk. Uh, <laughs> I did like a John Wayne impersonation yeah. in my chair. Um, oh my god. <laughs> but yeah, like, it is... Yeah, like, Clark was the one who kind of helped him, like, figure out the type of leader he wanted to be. So here's faux Clark pulling him back into... Right. And Brie was one of... was the first faux Clark. Right. And, like, (laughs) I assume Clark is coming back next episode. Yes, yes. To find, basically... To actually pull him back. Right, to see... to find early season one Bellamy again and be like, what the fuck? I thought we dealt with this already. Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, this is why, like, we were talking about last time that, that... Cain and Bellamy's unspooling in the Black Rain could only happen in a situation yeah. where the Clark and Abby are not just gone, there. they're unreachable. Yes. Yeah. And so without them to sort of be like, to be the anchor and also to sort of be the reminder of what reality is and of who you really are. And who they want to be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that they can be who they want to be. That yeah. is possible for them to make that choice to be that person. Exactly. Yeah. There's more to who you are than just the thing that you're beating yourself about right now in this moment. You know, and they both, both of those men, like, constantly need that sort of check-in perspective. And Clark and Abby, like we talked about last time, are the people who see them as, like, you have, you have inherent worth yourself as a human being that is not your utility to me and the things that you do right. for me. Mm-hmm. And you're not mm-hmm. just worth the number of people you save. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And what I think yeah. is important about Jasper being that person this episode is so, like, Jasper in season one idolized Bellamy. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Bellamy was the one who was like, oh, you were a good shot. And Jasper got all like kid with a crush. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He got all like, oh my God, he thinks I'm a good shot. Yeah. Yeah. Bellamy is the name. I'm an amazing person. (laughs) You know? And then in season two, he was the one who like believed that Bellamy and Clark would come back for them. Yeah. And he was the one who, like, figured out, you know, like, Bellamy had infiltrated Mount Weather and they just needed to hang on. Yeah. And, like, 
he had so much faith in Bellamy, mm-hmm. and then it was completely destroyed mm-hmm. at the beginning of season three. Mm-hmm. Like, right, like Bellamy lost all of mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and Jasper's just kind of ignored him. Yeah, since then, yeah. you know, like it's yeah. like he lost it. But then on this, you know, like on this trip, it wasn't like a kid with the guy he idolizes. It was like friends. Yeah, it was like his friend you know, being and, like, "Hey, man, you know that happened, but it's life's too short." You know, and like, Bellamy was like, short. Bellamy was trying to kind of be the one, in, you know, not necessarily in control, but you know, he was like, "We've been gone too long. We're going home." He's trying to be the dad, and yeah, Jasper's like, like, "Calm down. You're yeah, not my dad. Like, yeah, like, literally, <laughs> you're not my dad. Yeah, you're not yeah, my yeah, dad." Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do drugs if I want to. (laughs) Maybe you should have some too. (laughs) But like, I do think it was important that it was kind of, you know, Jasper's role as that. I think so too. Yeah. You know, the initial delinquent. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of. I think so too. See him for who he is. And be like, yeah, you've done some really shitty things. Yeah. But like, well, what you going to do? Go back in time. You can't. Yeah. (laughs) I do have to say one thing about this that I, I think. But it makes perfect sense for plot purposes, and I think maybe maybe it only bugs me just because I find it sad and depressing. Is is the contrast between the way Jasper treats Bellamy and the way Jasper treats Clark in yeah. in that ability to get past versus not get past things? Jasper was really really cutting and very cruel and critical. Not not wrong, but just very very harsh. Um, and kind of throwing all of Clark's worst mistakes or worst decisions or her sort of deepest pain back in her face. And I think to some degree, like, so I th- that's where I feel like there's, there is still, still something in Jasper's ability to move past this with Monty and Bellamy that he can't extend to Clark in some way. I think the way I read it is because Clark left. Right? Like, yeah. Bellamy was there. Yeah. And there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of the implication yeah, that Bellamy right. took Jasper's shit for three months. Yeah. And like, Monty any, did too. You know, anything Jasper needed to throw at them, they both just sat they there just and took, took it. it. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, I think Clark made the right choice for herself. Right. In leaving. For sure. At the end of Mount Weather. But, yeah. like, that still hurt people. Right. And one of those people was Jasper. Yeah. Right. So he wasn't able to process it. And then when she came back, it was like, okay, we got to fix things. And he was like, well, screw you. We got to fix a lot more shit than you think. (laughs) Right. Yeah. This is also kind of the way I think about Abby's anger at Kane and not Jaha. Oh, Oh, yeah. 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 Jasper. If he was as furious at Bellamy as he was at Clark or Monty, he would be completely alone. Who would he have? Bellamy is a connection he could maintain, So, who understood how horrible he felt about Mount Weather, which he was shitty to Bellamy too, but I think psychologically he would have been alone without Bellamy because he couldn't, he expected a certain degree of loyalty from Monty that he would put Jasper's concerns over the concerns of the many because he's Jasper's best friend and Monty didn't do that. Bellamy wasn't as close to him previously. Like, they were connected, but there's a difference between your best friend for life and a dude you forged a connection with in the last few months. And then Clark is gone. So Bellamy is the one person he can dump things on who won't leave him, who feels as bad as he does. And if he withholds a little bit of the blame that belongs to Bellamy and shoves it onto Clark and Monty, he gets to keep 
someone around. And also, Bellamy appears to have a lot more patience for Jasper's shit than Monty does. So I think there's a degree of self-protection. It's also a role Bellamy is really used to filling for yeah. Octavia. He can put up with it for longer than than Monty would Monty would not. And also Monty doesn't feel he deserves it. Bellamy thinks he deserves it. Oh sure. It. I mean the fact that he will and Monty won't is a point in Monty's favor in ter- terms of like psychological health, but Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think, I mean, maybe that that's a good point also in terms of just, you know, which we talked about a little bit last week, I think, with Octavia and Ilian. Or maybe we didn't talk about it in here, but I talked about it with some other people. Because a lot of people were really upset. I know there were some people upset on, like, Twitter and Tumblr about the fact that Octavia was more sort of, like, open to Ilian than she was to Bellamy, or she was more forgiving. And the thing is, like, I think in, in those really intense emotional situations, it is easier with somebody you're less close to. It's easier to forgive someone that you care about less than someone you care about more when they hurt you. And I think that that's another factor too, like you're saying, like, I think that's maybe why Bellamy is easier to forgive than Monty. Um, Right. You know, and, and like he did kind of idolize Bellamy, but I think he also felt really, really close to Clark. Um, Yeah. You know, like, I mean, before he started idolizing Bellamy. He idolized Clark. Yeah. So, I mean, that could be a factor as well, but I mean, Clark Clark is the one who saved him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, Claire, I, I do see what you mean. Like, yeah. I think there's a lot of, like, psychological reasons for it. But I, I do see what you mean in terms of just, like, you know, sort of watching it unfold on screen. Especially in the sort of parade of, like, people, people yelling, yelling at, at Clark. Clark. Yeah, it does feel a little <laughs> bit sort of like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think mostly it bothers me because it just sort of feels like everybody else who's willing to let this stuff go because there's only 10 days left and why hold on to this stuff and that for some reason there's something about Clark specifically where it's like this is the one that he can't get past. Well, I mean, here's a, here's another wrinkle though, Claire, I think maybe it makes a difference because the thing that he's always, like this season, um, he wasn't yelling at Clark about Mount Weather really. He was he was more talking to her about elite, you know, the kinds of decisions that she's making as a leader, right? And think about, like, when is the last time that Jasper related to Clark or had a relationship with Clark that was anything other than her being leader and him being, I don't even know, follower? That's true. You know, like, I mean, what was the last time he, him and Bellamy, in this this episode, yeah, they were equals. Right, exactly. That's true. But Bellamy was around, I mean, like, Bellamy was, I had had a higher position of authority in in Arcadia during the three-month time jump. Than Jasper did, obviously, but he was still there. You know, he was there the whole time. He had a personal relationship with him. He'd clearly been trying to help Monty get Jasper into a better place. They had a personal relationship. But Clark, you know, it was Matt Weather, and then she was gone for three months, and then she came back and she was Juan Heda. Right, right. That's a good point. And she, like, marched back in and was like, and, and not only was she, like, the leader, but, I mean, Clark, Clark, after she came back, has been emotionally unavailable to the people she's leading in a way that season one Clark, the leader, was not. Season one Clark was very, very much emotionally available to the delinquents. Season season three Clark, season four Clark, is really not emotionally available to very many people, like mostly Bellamy and her mother and Nyla, um, you know, and, and and but like to someone like Jasper, you know, and even Monty, you see yeah. her sort of shut down and put on her like, I'm the leader, I don't, you know, like, her sad little, like, it has to be, like, this leader face. But when's the last time that she spoke to them as a friend and not as a leader? I mean, that's I think a that's really the other piece point. of it. Yeah. He blames her for being the person who made these decisions and who took it upon herself to be the person who made th- those decisions. 
And like, we know what it's cost her personally to do that. But Jasper has never had the opportunity because she's never given him the opportunity to understand that. And we saw that with Murphy. Yeah. In Silence yeah. Island. Yes. Right? Yes. Exactly. You know, where Murphy's yep. like, you know what? Remember, I did shit for you too. Yes, exactly. Murphy's like, like you're talking to me like... Like, we just met, and then you're telling me how this is. Yeah, like, don't like, forget. I, I put my hand inside a human chest and pumped exactly. a heart. Yeah, yeah. To right, keep you right. Alive. Yeah. So <laughs> I, think, I think maybe, like, this is this is a problem that, that Clark has that I don't know if it's ever, you know, it, maybe it'll be addressed to, I don't know. But, like, I think that the issue that she has is that, you know, she's become so distant. I mean, she's, she's the big picture leader, right? But it's also made her very distant, from the people that she's leading. And that's always, like, she's always been better at that, and Bellamy has been better at the personal connection. But she had more of it, I think, in season one. Right, she's she definitely, she's yeah, moved away from them. And yeah. I think she thinks it's necessary. I think she does. But I don't think it is. Yeah, well, yeah. I think she thinks it's necessary because if you think about, like, the deci- series of decisions that they made on Science Island, it's necessary to do that. And I think this probably is deliberate because I think this is what Jaha was trying to t- tell her about. And like the, the, the Clark Jaha parallels, I think are a piece of this because it's necessary for her to do that in order for her to be able to make decisions like strapping Amori down someone she knows and choosing to do well, something. That and could it kill. started with, she had to make a list of a hundred exactly. people who were going to live exactly, and 400 people who were going to die. Exactly. And so in order to protect yourself, in order to be able to do that, to emotionally protect yourself, at a certain point you have to sort of like stop yourself from emotionally connecting with these people that you might someday not be able to save or have to actually sacrifice. And so right. like, it is a self-protective thing, but it is also a humongous limitation to her, both personally and in terms of motivating the people that she's leading, and in terms of her ability to make moral decisions. Yeah. Because because to protect herself, she's trying to stop thinking about these people as people, and that makes it possible for her to do, to, like, this is basically how she's going to become, you know, Jaha, or the sort of, like, Jaha-Dante Wallace fusion that she started to. And I think this episode, with her deciding to put the blood, you know, the night blood in herself... We saw her turn away from that. You know, she, she, right. I think she, had, she sort of had that revelation. And I think Murphy is the reason that it happened. Right. You know, he, he reminded her like, bitch, well, we have a relationship. You well, know? And it's not yeah, just yeah, that. Yeah. He reminded her that he loved Amori. Yes. Yes. You know, really like, it's, yeah. you know, like love is weakness. Like, yeah. Clark rejected that. That's and she's true. remembering like, she yeah. can't. Yeah. Well, she's remembering. She like, doesn't want to is... take that from someone else. And he's she also knows reminding what it feels her... like to lose someone she loves. Yeah. And he forced her to remember, like, she's trying to think like, I have to think rationally about this choice. I have to think about like rationally about what's the best thing. And he's reminding her like, there are important factors to a decision that are not rational. And one of them is I love her, you know, like she's not yeah. just, the most logical and person. No matter, even if this saves us. Yeah. I'll kill you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and, and maybe reminding her or reminding us in a way that emotional repercussions are of a decision are real repercussions. They are not right. incidental. You They're know? not theoretical. They're not theoretical. Yeah. The line about where she, where Roan tells her that they'll thank her and she says, Imori won't, Murphy won't, is such a perfect encapsulation encapsulation of where they're going with and also yeah in a way kind of dovetails with Bellamy because Clark she's she's learning to see people as pawns yeah to think of the long game and to remove herself from the emotional costs of of the choices of her action and the way she she suddenly realizes like it's it's this moment of 
it, it brings back the do we deserve to survive, but more for Clark, there's a level of when you're a leader, like in the style of Jaha, you almost overinflate your own importance. Yeah. I need to allow people to die so that all can survive, but I don't need to be one of those people because I'm more important. I have the vision. I have the strategy. And Clark is saying here, I'm not more important. If I am asking you to put your life on the line, if I am playing, you know, chess with your lives, I need to see myself as a piece in the game and not above right. it all. And that's a really interesting parallel to Bellamy. Yeah. Last episode. Yeah. yeah. It really dovetails nicely. Where he, his, he had to learn, like, I have personal value. I am value. more important. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, where he was like, screw it, I'll die with him. Yeah. And, and Kate was like, no. That's dumb. <laughs> that doesn't actually yeah. fix anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I disagree a little bit. Like, I, I, I see what you're saying, Sarah. I think, to me, part of how I read that moment is... By, like, when she says, I bear it so they don't have to, and she injects herself to make herself the test subject, I think in some ways, it's not so much that she's above them, like, we saw her, like, physically above them with Roan looking down on the yeah, room, like, yeah, in that sort yeah. of, like, visual before, but, but she is, she's decisively setting herself apart. Part of how I read that is she's further removing herself in some way. Like she's she's leveling the the playing field. Like she's not saying I'm I'm more worthy of living than you are, but she's she's creating I think a pretty definitive boundary around herself. She's sort of saying not that she's more important, but just that she is she's a singular person. Like when she says I bear it, so I don't have to. Part of part of I think what's contained in that is her feeling like I I am capable of carrying this in a way that I can't ask somebody else to carry that. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, we actually agree. Uh, what I, I think I expressed it wrong. What I meant was prior to that moment, there was a sense of in the Jaha sense, I'm, I'm a little bit above you guys. I'm making the choice for you guys. When Clark injects herself and says, I bear it so they don't have to, she's putting herself on the same level. That's what I meant is that's the shift to where she's no longer feeling as though I'm making decisions for others because I'm a little bit more needed because I can make the decision. Well, and also I think that's a really interesting, it's a, it's a really interesting, not quite reversal, but transformation of the Dante Wallace line. Um, because when Dante says, I bear it so they don't have to, what he means is, I bear the difficulty and guilt of making decisions so they don't have to. The knowledge that we're doing this thing to these other bodies so they don't have to. Right, when right. Clark says it, it's this transformation because what she's kind of been doing, she's already been doing the like, I'm going to bear the guilt of making, like, mm -hmm. that's like, bear the guilt of making the list so they don't have to. This is her saying, I am going to bear the, the actual sacrifice the actual physical sacrifice itself right. so they don't have to yeah so exactly. so yeah so i mean like it's like it's a really great callback because she's sort of taking this lesson and actually really putting herself into it in the way that dante wallace never would have but that's more parallel i guess maybe to jaha staying behind on the ark you know, for an episode I think was was really full of Mount Weather parallels, I think that was the one that was the most deftly handled. I think just having Raven say, welcome to Mount Weather, they probably felt that a lot in Mount Weather, it was sort of like, it felt a little ham-handed. And it also felt weirdly narratively inconsistent for Raven. Somebody, like I know somebody has to say, hey, Abby, 
Hey, Abby, remember when you were strapped down in a table and someone was drilling you for bone marrow? We can't show it in the previous leaves because it was two seasons ago, but everyone needs to remember that that happened to you. Right, but it also happened to Raven. It did happen to Raven. I feel like from Jackson, I would have liked it better. It feels like, did they flip where Raven stands on this one versus many question without setting it up adequately? That's kind of how I felt. So, so Raven was also only in Mount Weather very briefly, and she was drilled. So, like, I think that's where it came from. I would have been cool, as you're thinking about it, it would have been cool if Miller had said that. Right, because um, he, like, he was fighting like, to protect exactly. Miller people was there. from this. Miller yeah. was fighting against those people who were trying to take their, like, he was in the barricaded off, you know, barracks right. trying to, like, fend off getting his. Yeah, trying to, like, steal guns and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, I yeah. think it would have been a cool thing for, for Miller to say. But but the reason, so here's why I'm actually okay with, I, I think it is a reversal on, on Raven's part, but here's why I'm okay with it is because. This, unlike the medicine thing for Raven, is personal because she was strapped down to that table in Mount Weather and she was drilled for her bone marrow. So I think it makes sense for Raven. It's not it's not like her she has like considered philosophically her moral approach to this question and changed it. She's having a visceral reaction to the thing that Which she's is watching. Very happen. much Raven. That it, well, yeah, exactly. That is like totally that is how Raven her instincts. Yes. Always, because her instincts are always right. Exactly, exactly. You know what I wish they had done? I wish they had made that slightly more textual, had a conversation where Raven said, you know, Abby, this is what they did to us. Because, you know, Abby was drilled as well. And I wish just that one line would have made me feel better. I think there's something interesting to mine in the fact that in that moment, Abby is both the Abby that was strapped down to the table being drilled and the Dr. Singh. Like there are elements of both of those transformed into this totally new thing because she's Abby. Raven's reaction to it felt a little too black and white. I, I don't like the line, welcome to Mount Weather. Like that, like I agree with you, that was too on the nose, you know, because it was like, right. like and we it feels always... like a low blow. Like it's, yeah. Abby and, it's Abby and Raven. They love yeah. each other. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. like, right, yeah. right. Like tensions are high, but. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I do like that it was Raven. I do like that it was Raven. Raven actually fits more. I just wish they had stuck in that one line, especially since Abby and Raven are the two characters who were, other than Harper, who is not around at this on Science Island, they were drilled. So to make it more emotionally personal for both of them rather than just Raven feels like it kind of resonated a little better. You know, like it almost feels like I wish it would have been like Raven reacting to watching it maybe even like what was what was drilled in her like her hip or something you know like just rubbing the spot on her body where it happened and then like even just like Clark saying like are you okay and Raven saying like they strapped me down like that too and Abby you know like some some yeah right or like well Luna was limping was that was she yeah I wasn't Luna was limping because of the extractions I think that's what yeah that's what I was thinking yeah and so yeah you know like there's an immense Physical cost. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because that was another injury that both Abby and Raven in the time jump we didn't see would have had to heal from that exact same injury that Luna now has. I think there's ways to draw those parallels that didn't feel quite so much like somebody needs to state out loud that Abby is in the Cage Wallace Dr. Singh position in this very accusatory way. You know what would have been really awesome and would have required zero dialogue? Is like give us a little shot of like Abby looking at her scar uh-huh. from being drilled and Raven seeing her looking at the scar and they make eye contact and Raven gives her like a dirty yeah. look and Abby looks uncomfortable and then she right. goes and does yeah. it anyway. You know? yeah. Yes, that would be perfect. That would have completely solved it. 
Then it's about what happened to them. Yes. And it's about their relationship to each other and the way yeah. that Abby is like betraying their that relationship right. and that experience. This thing that they they've share. gone through. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if maybe what is what bugs you about it? The, because here's the thing about about Raven saying welcome to Mount Weather. About having that like having that character just say a line like that is that while it reminds the viewer of what happened in Mount Weather and the parallels, it does so in such a way that kind of makes it seem like Raven is remembering and Abby isn't. Exactly. You know? or yeah, yeah, like yeah. a real thing for Raven and less for Abby. And like, they show Abby looking uncomfortable about it, but because it's just Raven like delivering it. So I think that's why having right. it as a dialogue or having it as a, as an even a, a, a exchanging a look between Abby and Raven establishes like this is something that happened to both of them. Abby is remembering it as well as Raven, although they're making different sort of choices about it. This is this is something yeah. that changes the relationship between them. Right. You know, this it makes is it... Abby justifying to herself exactly. why this is okay to exactly. do. Exactly, exactly. Whereas whereas Raven saying that line, I, th- I think that was like that was clearly happening until Raven said the line and then it had this way of sort of like pulling it towards like the Mount Weather stuff is about Raven in a way it's not about Abby. And well, I don't it was think also kind of like, here is the thesis statement. That moment in particular, it felt like both Raven and then the narrative and then subsequently the fandom pointing <laughs> a big red neon arrow yeah. at Abby and being like, you're the new Dr. Singh, you're the new Dr. Singh. And it's like, I don't think that's the story they were trying to tell. No, I don't think no. so either. Because when, they, when it comes up later, when Abby repeats Kane's line, like when they have the more nuanced callback of it, when she says the like, first we survive, then we find our humanity again. And Raven's like, they probably said that at Mount Weather too. It worked that time. But I, but I did feel like, um, you know, in, in the vein of sort of the whole season's theme being like taking these moments from past seasons and like the sort of like flipping all of these big defining moments in these characters lives I think what I do like about it particularly with the with Clark and Dante Wallace is that I think they do a really good job of the issue of consent becoming the thing that is where everybody sort of trips up and and can't they can't cross that line that Matt Weather was crossing. Like that that's the place where where these people are different people and they have different values. And so I think it's important that qualitative difference in everybody's response to when it's Bayless versus when it's Amori and sort of all of the different shades and nuances of of that. And Luna being really like, you know, everyone has a lot of like uh, what are we doing? But Luna is actually the only person who says no because it's Luna, you know. Yeah, yeah. Luna's like, I'm here to be the foil, so whatever you say, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will literally fight you on it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Jasper's speech about your reasons are your own at the end of the world. Who gives a fuck why you did something? You did it. Really has a lot of impact on the on Science Island. Yeah, it does. Yeah, because yeah. that's what they're struggling with is. Why are we killing them? Do our reasons matter? I'm pretty sure fake Bayless doesn't give a shit because he's still dead, guys. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. your reasons are your own. He's still dead. I did kind of have to laugh at how quickly they were like, well, Amori lied about that guy. She's the next tech subject. <laughs> like, next test subject. Like, you know, it's kind of like, you were a shady motherfucker, Amori, so yeah. we're going to kill you now. And it's like, every person in that room, except for maybe Luna, is a shady, a shady motherfucker. motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is a very weird comparison, but I love the show Survivor. I'm a little obsessed with it. It's the last unregistered psych experiment in the world. I don't <laughs> care about the sports part. I don't care about the sports. I don't care about the challenges. I want to watch dirty people try to screw each other over and go insane. But the thing about Survivor is you got to vote someone out. Like, that's the game. You can't not. So people come up with these insane reasons. All of a sudden, someone they were allies with two episodes ago chews a little too loud on their coconut, and it's voting day. <laughs> so all of a sudden, coconut chewer is the worst person you've ever met. You hope they die. You think their mother sucks. When you have to do something, you find a reason to scapegoat a lot of the time. And I think... That acted out perfectly on Silence Island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is the well, this and is like way... Clark was so relieved to have a reason to kill Bailey. Yep. Yes, oh yes, yes for exactly. sure. And the, that's the reasoning she kept giving Abby. Or, and she says at the beginning again, none of us like want this. None of us want to do this. None of us are happy about it. But we have to because you know. So I think we. You're right. We're sort of seeing her going through the journey of realizing like. Your reasons are your own. They don't matter. The fact that you don't like to do it or you don't want to do it doesn't matter if you do it anyway. Right. You know, and you the, still put Bayless in a yeah, radiation yeah, yeah. chamber. Yeah, and and it's a, Bayless, I guess. this is this is in, in a lot of ways this this is kind of like the epitome too of uh, Kane's like do better next time thing because they're because they're basically like, well, Bayless is dead. That was fucked up. Um... I guess we're not going to do this again. <laughs> yeah. like, you still did it the first time. I guess I'm glad that you didn't do it the second time. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, Sarah. Um, that's kind of like the overarching theme that that brings those two arcs together. I think that's where Murphy becomes so fascinating because he, from the minute that Amori basically explained to him what was happening and said they are absolutely going to pick me. I don't, you know, like she's not an idiot. She's like I'm the dispensable one, you know. And it's for different reasons. I think that's what's really sort of sad about it is that she assumes that it's because of her disability. And can I just say I loved that Raven called Roan out for calling Amori. Yes, yes. like just yes. like her immediate like shut the yep. fuck up. Don't yeah, say that. yeah. You don't yeah. call like that was awesome. <laughs> I think that's a super important thing to reinforce. The, the thing that's sad about everyone's inability to understand each other in, in this in that particular size of the storyline is Amori is expecting to meet prejudice and rejection from them in a particular and specific way that she's met it her entire life. And so the action that she takes to circumvent that, which is roping in this other guy, lying about it, creating this whole fake story, this whole fake Bayless thing. The irony of the fact that that ends up being why she ends up on the table is really sad because it, it's it's nothing at all like what she thought it was going to be. You know, she sort of assumed like it's because I'm an outsider. It's because I'm a freak. And they were like, no, it's because you lied and made us kill a person who's basically innocent and now we're all kind of freaked out about it and we don't have a brig to throw you in so we're going to try this instead and we know it's real gross but also like you did just try to smash up the thing you know like like it's all it all feels sort of tragically preventable in a way and I don't know that I know what they would have done differently yeah I mean you know but it's interesting that you're saying what but that, what that reminds me of a little bit is um the creature in Frankenstein, mm -hmm. the thing that, that drives the creature to do, you know, sort of like destructive things that he winds up doing is because 
he is rejected and isolated and alone. And he's so, like, miserably unhappy because, like, basically, like, he's so ugly, everyone, like, assumes that he's a monster and screams and runs from him or hurts him. And he's just so desperate for connection and for love. And no one will give it to him. And, and like, he even says to Frankenstein at one point when he demands that Frankenstein make him, you know, a companion. He, you know, he's just like, I, I, will, I will leave you alone. I'll leave everyone alone. I just can't be in solitude anymore. And then, and then what he says to Frankenstein decides he can't make the companion. And, and the creature is basically like, that's cool. I'm going to make you as miserable as I am. Um, but, it's, but it's about loneliness. It's about rejection. You know, because he doesn't have connection, because he expects to be rejected, like the creature winds up doing all these horrible things. Right. And Murphy's been able to at least accept a little bit of society, essentially. You know, right. Like, yeah. 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 You know, like well, he, he wasn't rejected. Says, he wasn't rejected as thoroughly as completely right. as Maury like he's was. Faced, right. He's right. faced rejection. But like, I mean, in the. Mostly because he's an asshole. Yeah, like a lot of times, like, <laughs> right. he deserved it. Yeah. yeah. Or like, like, that he actually did as opposed to simply being born in a way that people rejected, which is right. much more, like, deeply, deeply wounded. But so it's also, he's more willing to kind of accept, like, he knows, like, when Abby yeah. and Clark are yeah. reaching out to him. Yes. Like, he's yes. like, okay, like, I have an in. We can yes. get back with them. Yeah. And Imori just doesn't have she that She just doesn't have, she has no trust. basis for, yeah, yeah, she has no yeah. basis for yeah. trust. Yeah, this is never. I she, thought including the Rome line was important there because... I think there, I saw some debate over whether Imori had a logical reason to be afraid. And at the very least, Roan's referring to her um, by a slur shows that she's not, like, this isn't something she's made up. That's, he immediately yeah. goes to Fritrena. Like, yeah. that's what she is to Roan. That just low-key discrimination. Right. right? Well, no, like, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it, it's one of those things where, like, okay, so maybe she doesn't have a logical reason like a direct reason to distrust these particular people. Maybe. I mean, I, I, I don't actually know that that's true that she doesn't, but she, maybe she doesn't, but, but yeah. like it's any other person, like she has a lifetime of experience with people with, with being proven that she can't trust people. Right. So like, and being rejected and, and being, being rejected. And yeah. So like, so like actually it makes sense that she goes there first. Yeah. Right. And there's like and a great deal like of the most powerful person from her culture. Yeah, like, exactly. Conquer that. Exactly. Kind of without thinking. Right, right, right. Like, right. Raven yeah. has to be like, shut up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a microaggression, you know, yeah. it's like, this is why she feels unsafe and actually is unsafe. Right. You know, right. in this group, in a Even way that though, like... Roan maybe wouldn't have chosen her right. because of that. Right. And like, you know, of right. course, like, the rest of the people in that room, especially the Sky people, aren't aware of it because of their privilege, because, you know, they're right. like... They aren't afflicted with in the way that she is, and she hasn't been rejected the way that she has. But it, it really is is irrelevant whether she has like a direct logical reason to not trust them. She has totally logical psychological, right? You know, exactly. like like societal yeah. structural exactly. reasons yeah. not to trust them. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the Murphy and Clark scene. So, well, I mean, other than being just an absolute amazing tour de force of acting from Richard Harmon doing, I think his best work on this show maybe ever. Yeah. They're all so good that I almost get tired of saying how good they are because everyone is good at everything all the time. This is his best performance until next week. (laughs) Until next week. (laughs) If you think about the arc that he has gone on to, you know, be in a place where he's so clearly where the audience sympathy is and where the other character's sympathy is. Everyone has this kind of like, all right, we're 
quietly agreeing that we have to do the thing, but we all feel gross about it, but we're doing it. We're all, everyone in this room is complicit. And yet Murphy back there, you know, handcuffed to the rocket, screaming like you can see the visceral way that gets under everyone's skin, like it sort of cuts around to everyone like reacting to it. And it's just, I think it's a really fascinating sort of really putting a big, you know, neon button on his character transformation. That even though he's the reason that Raven will be disabled forever, the way that she completely cannot get past the fact that for him and for the woman he loves, they're doing something that is just like a torment. Like, I just think it's such a fascinating, in only four seasons, what a turnaround Murphy has gone on, I think is kind of amazing. Well, and I'm sure there's got to be some guilt there on Murphy's part because he's the reason Imori's even there. That's right? true. Like, and Maury he promised wanted, her, like, we're going to be safe. She wanted to leave. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, and How he many convinced times her did she want to leave? To, yeah. like, join them to, you know, like, help yeah. save the world yeah. because then they'd survive. And then she wanted to leave and he was like, no, 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 let me go talk to Clark. We'll fix it. If he'd gone off with her on any one of those instances Mm -hmm, she mm -hmm. wouldn't be in this position and we haven't really seen murphy (laughs) kind of like take responsibility for a person like that quite in this way and he vouched for clark and abby specifically yeah right yeah like those were two people that he specifically said like no 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 these two are okay yes i know the whole rest of the sky crew has like kicked me out a million times (laughs) (laughs) You know, he'd built up with the two of them specifically at different times and different ways over the course of season three, you know, and had like established a trust with them that I think it. So so I'm I'm interested in kind of how even though at the 11th hour, Clark changed her mind, like Abby couldn't go through it and, you know, and Clark changed her mind. But still, they made the choice to do the thing. So the emotional ramifications, like we talked about before with Bellamy, the emotional consequences of the things that you do are still there. Like, there are still people who made this choice. And how does that shape Murphy's relationship to them going forward, knowing that they were willing to do it? Right, because Murphy knows now, no matter what, that they they considered it. Right, yeah, like, that's true. and they didn't just mm-hmm. consider it; they all strapped her it. down. Yeah. They got right up there, and yeah, pulled you know, back and it was Clark second. having an attack of conscience at the last minute that saved her. Yeah, you know, like they were, but they were, they, they were, were all doing, going to go through with it, and they were all doing, yeah. they were all working as hard as they could to convince themselves to go through with it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like they, their consciences came, went over, you know, came out in the end, one in the end, but they were actively trying to suppress those consciences. Abby's line to Raven, I think, is what kind of confirms that. You know, we can get our humanity back later. That's she's trying to convince herself of that. It fails, but like you said, like Murphy will always know forever that they tr- they were they were trying to not be the people that that he thought they were, that they thought they were. And like Murphy only recently really started buying into the whole social contract. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. right. Like it was really only in This is not an auspicious beginning. Yeah, right. Right. Like, okay, this society thing is some bullshit, as you I know. That he's second. like you know, it's like second half of season three. Yeah. He started trying it, and then he and Amori kinda like noped out for a bit. Yeah. You know, but then he was like, No, 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 this will be our best chance to survive. He put effort in. He was willing to do things for them in exchange for him and Amori surviving. And in the end, that didn't count for anything. Yeah. You know, like, that's how he's going to see it. Yeah, that this is the furthest that he's gone in a long time to try to establish trust with somebody and really put himself on the line. And specifically, I think, for Clark and Abby. Can, can, his, can his flexible moral relativism that allows him to excuse choices about survival when he and Amori make them apply to other people? 
Elizabeth, what you said when you were talking about the social contract, I think it's really interesting the way that the conversation that, or the you know argument that he and Clark has. You know, really, it's about we're talking about Murphy and trust, and the fact that like that you know this is a betrayal of trust that he had put in Clark and Abby specifically. Because I think part of, you know, what's interesting there, part of the, what the clash that's happening is that Clark is is banking on this sort of detached, more impersonal trust in the in the sort of form of that, like, Roan expects it or demands it from his people. So she's above looking down. There's a kind of, like, you trust me because I'm the leader and it's and, and I know what's best in the kind of big... Right, and big, I'm not going to do this unless I absolutely... Right. Yeah, exactly. And you just have to sort of abstractly trust... That I have looked at all of the options and all of the the big picture questions and come up with the best and only possible solution. And, you know, and, and so basically like what she's asking for is this very kind of abstract trust in her as as the leader who knows more than he does and who's thought about it more than he has kind of thing, you know. And what Murphy, I think, so I think it's really interesting that Murphy, you know, she says, I'm saving all of us or, you know, I'm saving us. And Murphy screams back at her, well, don't forget that while you were saving everyone, I was saving you. Because I think that that kind of gives you a nice little little nugget of, like, Clark is appealing to him on the basis of this abstract trust. I am the leader who's been given the power to make this decision, so you have to trust me. And it's right. kind of like, like, this is what we do in society. You trust your leaders, you know. And what Murphy says is, is basically, like, I trusted you. Because for these very specific interpersonal reasons, you know, like my, right. I don't trust you in the abstract, you're the leader way. I trust you because you're Clark. And when I was in the room, when Lexa died, you said right. I was your friend, you know, and when you were on that throne, I pumped on Tari's heart because we were friends and we have this relationship. Like I trust you because you have demonstrated to me through actions that I can, I, Murphy, can trust you, Clark. And when she shifts to you, person who is not in charge, need to me, trust me, person who is in charge, that me doing this thing that hurts you personally is not personal and is for the best. He's like, I do not grant that premise. That is not how yeah, I yeah. have trust, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, like, it's a really, really interesting moment for those two characters. But I think it's also really important to Clark, for Clark's arc, because that was kind of like, the epitome, like we were talking about before, the epitome of Clark leader and Clark like isolated leader mode, sort yeah. of like detached from that interpersonal. Like she's talking to Murphy, she's sort of I think maybe forgotten that um, that that other mode of trust exists and that that's important and that that's what she needs. That's what she has with Murphy, and Murphy reminds her, right. "You're a person. We're two people who have a relationship." Right, and it's not just that; it's that you know he has a relationship with Imori yes, too. Yes, 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 yes. Well, and I don't, I don't know that it's even that she's forgotten it. I think she can't afford that right now. Well, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. She set it aside. She hasn't forgotten, but she's sort of set it aside. She's turned it off, and he, and and, but he, I think when he yells at her, he makes her, he sort of makes her remember that and t- and factor that in again. And yeah, you're right. I think yeah. we, like her, her having to confront like, well, you know, I hadn't thought about before about the fact that Murphy was it, the person who was in the room with her when Lexa died. But I think that's a big factor of him saying, right. I love her. You know, like he's appealing right. to her. She's he's like taking yeah. Mori away I think from that's yeah. deliberate. I think it is yeah. too. I think he's saying like, I saw you in the moment that you lost the person you loved. You know, so right. I know you know. Are you, you going to do it to me yeah, too? Yeah, like I know you know the feeling. You know, right. are, you gonna, are you going to inflict that pain on me that I know you have felt? And I also want to say like, so I got this asked before this, before this episode aired, someone was like, okay, Clark 
Murphy and Amori are in the Hunger Games. Who wins? Right? And I was <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like Amori. Yeah. Hands yeah. down. Right? Hands <laughs> fucking down. But then, <laughs> like, just, she would, she would take it all. But then in this episode, she at no point really attempts to save herself at the expense of Murphy. That's, no. And she specifically tells Murphy, don't right. fight back. Don't fight back. Then Make they'll them take think that you're else. on their side like, to keep yourself alive. She resigns herself to what she knows, what she's known was coming since she overheard yeah. Clark and Abby yeah. talking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And she's just like, this is what you have to do to survive. Well, she's got that I'm, thing that... You know, kind of like, I'm a lost cause. Yeah. This is how you move on. She's got that thing, I think, that, that, that Jasper's yeah. missing right now, where she's like, I'm going to die, I accept it, but like your life is... Yeah, your life matters. Your life is more precious. Yeah, yeah. The most important thing is, like, you don't die because I'm dying. She has a stubborn value for life and not for everyone's lives. And she doesn't care about a lot of people. But Murphy living and surviving is important. And, and yeah, and it's the opposite of Jasper, who's at the funeral. is like, oh, the dead don't care. Who gives a fuck? You know, he's sort of dissociated from it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Let's go have a party with the other teenagers. I've just I've convinced to not care that they're dying. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really sort of beautiful and heartbreaking in um, in that moment, in the way that he's reaching out to Clark, is when you think about what you know, what we know of who Murphy is and of his childhood and of his life and sort of the kind of you know formative like shaping forces that have made him the person that he is when we first meet him, and you think about what it costs him. To show that level of vulnerability to Clark in that moment, to say out loud that he loves Amori and to be like begging for her life, it's a remarkable and I think kind of transformative moment of emotional honesty from somebody who's primarily really learned to keep all of those things really closed down because it's safer that way. Yeah, and Murphy, who's always tried to maintain a very ironic relationship to his own emotions, you know, it's like, so it's jarring when he's sincere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting Kane parallel here, Um, especially in how they do the scene. I noticed throughout the episode, they have repeating lines from old seasons that where Murphy's pleading with Clark, that's all, I went back and looked, there are a lot of direct mirrored points to when Kane is begging for Abby's life in Mount Weather. Oh. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. Yeah. We can donate it. There's a direct call. And it's interesting to see not only the direct parallel in just this is a Mount Weather comparison, but that's one of the first moments where we see Kane really just lose his shit. Like, he can't allow this to happen, and it's very, very specifically about Abby in that moment, and how she's an outlet for him to let out these feelings that have always been there, but have not been able to find a purchase or a a vehicle for expression. So it's interesting that we see not only the Mount Weather parallel, but the development parallel. Even even shot by shot, they're really similar. You know, Kane chained to the wall, Murphy locked to the rocket, the way the shots are framed on their face. Really, really clear parallels. I think it's a moment that's about that relationship, but it's also about the journey that character has gone on to be in that, where that level of desperation is something that you're just throwing it all out there. Because caring about someone that deeply is vulnerability in and of itself. And I, I don't think the old detached Murphy would feel comfortable giving Clark that weapon. Because that is absolutely a weapon you give people when you admit that if you hurt them, I hurt and I think yeah. there's a level of, of beautiful honesty to Murphy in that moment. Well, then, of course, also that really highlights that 
you know, Clark's going to go out into the other room and she's going to make the decision that the people in that weather didn't make. Kane screaming didn't stop them. And in this right, case, right, Murphy's, right. Murphy's plea does stop Clark. You know, so it also really kind of like throws into relief that Clark, although she's kind of like bumping up against, you know, becoming... It's not so much history repeating as history improving. I'm really into it. Or evolving. You know, the spiral. So you return to the same point, but it diverges, right? Like she's, mm-hmm. she takes the different path. Which I really like the echo plus uh, evolving. I, yeah. I, yeah. I like the was, way they're repeating but changing. Instead yeah. of repetitive. Yes, 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 yes. Do we want to talk a little bit about that Clark Roan scene? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love their, like, sibling relationship. <laughs> just, like, the really way he like, leaned... exasperated older brother, or, you know those gifts of, like, the giant Doberman and the little tiny fluffy dog? Yes. Like, just attacking yeah. it while the Doberman sits there like, Jesus Christ, what's my life right now? How many, like, hundred pound women has Roan had to fight? I know, it's like, seriously. <laughs> yeah, like, Roan's just like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> Like, just in this episode, he fought Luna and Amori. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the way he, like, kind of, like, leans on the door when he, like, opens <laughs> it to talk to her. Google Earth, always taking pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But it literally looked like mom says dinner's ready. Yeah, they were like, really, 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 yeah. But I thought it was kind of interesting that we got another, another sort of instance of a leader trying to sort of mentor Clark and tell her what she should do, you know, like how she should be. And also try to make her okay with the choices she's making. Yeah, and like reassure her. Like Kane and Jaha with Bellamy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, this is what we have to do. Right. You're good at this. You're making the right Right. choice. Right, I think in a way, Roan's pep talk might have actually helped Clark make her decision later. The moment where he says they'll thank you. And she says, no, they won't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like one of those things where he's talking to her like he talks to himself, you know? Right. Well, and he's a king. And he's a king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's like a very different yeah. social role than an 18, 19-year-old. Unelected. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who at one point was in charge of like 99 other people. Yeah, you right. know? Like, it's... <laughs> She has a much more intimate relationship with the people she's leading yeah. than he does. And he's sort of trying to talk her through, like, here's what it means to be a leader in his sort of understanding of it, his context of it. And I think what that helps her realize, again, is sort of like as a contrast, like, okay, I don't actually want to be that kind of leader. Right, right. Like, he, he basically explains to her, here are the repercussions of your decision and what you're going to have to sort of accept about yourself if you make that decision. And she makes a different choice, you know. Right, um, she can't live with herself if she makes that decision. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, you know, which is not to say that I think that, like, Roan is a bad leader or anything like that, but I just think it's another one of those things where where I think in a more subtle way, Roan is kind of acting as a foil to Clark. Because, again, because, you know, we're sort of joking about he's, he fought Luna and he fought Amori in this episode, but Roan is also the one person in this episode who never really has any misgivings about what they're doing. And so he fights Luna because he is the one who is willing to not let Luna, like initially, to willing to not let Luna make that choice. Like they're all kind of uncomfortably going to let her walk away. And he's the one who stops her and fights her and puts her in the sleeper hold. Once she's unconscious, then, you know, that makes it possible for Abby to kind of like push away out of her mind what she's doing. Because nobody else is voicing an objection. No one is voicing an objection. Luna can't. She doesn't have to look in Luna's face. Like, I think it's really important when she does that, right. when Luna's back is to her. Yeah. 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 But like, if Roan hadn't taken it upon himself to stop her, 
they would have just let her walk away. He's the one who fights Amori and is willing to sort of like subdue her. He's kind of like the one in this position who is really just sort of like, we have to do this thing or we're going to do it and the ends justify the means. Right. I will enforce this. Yeah. And, and we'll and, get through it and we'll deal with the consequences later. Right. Exactly. So in that sense, he's sort of very quietly, very in a subtle way, kind of forces everyone else into these crisis moments, including Clark. So Clark, on the one hand, has sort of Murphy as a foil, throwing her decisions into relief in one way. Luna as a foil, you know, again, like revoking her consent. But Roan is also a foil in the other direction, you know, giving her the other side of the argument. And it's because she has all of those sides present that she's able to sort of like, again, it's the Clark Griffin thing. She's got one way, she's got the other way, she finds the third way. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So like the one thing in that conversation with Roan, I feel a little weird about, I don't know what to think of, is when he says you were born for this. And like, I can't tell if I'm supposed to take it straight. Right. If this is, if this is the show being like... Clark was born special. The Lexa reference makes me feel like we're supposed to take it like that's real information. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I think too. And I sort of don't like it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it taking it straight is sort of a cringy line. One of the things that I am a little bit side-eyeing about the potential sort of future storylines that could be what this episode is foreshadowing gets into some Christ figure chosen one stuff with Clark that I feel like is very heavy handed. This season, when people are talking to Clark and they bring up, Lexa thought this about you, my feeling is that we're always supposed to interpret that as like, the narrative is saying this is a true thing about Clark. Like Lexa is the narrative. The narrative is saying this is a real thing we are now meant to understand as part of Clark's character and the way we're reinforcing that it's valid, is that we are linking it in some way to her memories of Lexa, which are sacred. Right. And there's, and like for one thing, so there's a bunch of things that kind of like, that don't quite work for me about that. And one of them is like, in a lot of those cases, how the fuck did any of those people know that? Like, Roan didn't yeah. talk to Lexa. Roan didn't like Lexa. Yeah. Roan hated Lexa. Roan was trying to fucking kill Lexa. <laughs> and then he got like kicked out of Polis. The only time we saw them interacting, they hated each other. And then Lexa betrayed him again. His line about Lexa that did make sense that I just laughed out loud because it was so funny was after Luna, where he basically was like, ah, Nightbloods, am I right? <laughs> right? Yeah, like that, that felt like, okay. Yeah. That felt right. Yeah, that's that felt like a yeah, like experience of right? Lexa. The Which other is thing like, is, these people make problems. Yeah, me. exactly. <laughs> and then like, there was another one where like, when Nyla said to Clark, Lexa, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, how the fuck did you know, Nyla? You never in your life met Lexa. You never talked to her, like... At best, you're just, like, making shit up to make a grieving person feel better. You know, which right. would be fine if we weren't meant to take it as, like, narrative truth. If somebody says, Lexa thought this about Clark, that's the writers saying, This is true about Clark. Yeah. Even if it contradicts past things we have told you about Clark. Yeah. Or past yeah. things that we've seen Clark do. Our new normal is Clark transcended tribalism just last season because of her relationship with Lexa. Right. Even though it's, like... Absurd. <laughs> yeah, even though she did it in season one. Yeah. <laughs> it feels shortcutty because it's yeah. like, there isn't time to base this in anything that we have time to watch develop. But the other thing about that line that sort of like got under my skin a little bit, I guess it maybe has something to do with the fact that Clark is a nightblood now and what that might mean. Because the combination of Clark being in nightblood now and the line about like, you were born for this. And this sort of like Messiah E stuff with her. Oh, the right, white right, right. savior. Oh, the white savior. Yeah. 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 And like and like Clark becoming the commander 
And like and with all the transcendent tribalism stuff where like she's special and unique and she's doing she's this the thing, only one the only is... one who's managed to do this thing that Lexa only partially managed to do and now she's a night blood and oh you were born for this and oh you're special it just is like all kind of adding up into this like story that if it goes like that I will be really right because like comfortable. I don't want Clark to be commander. Yeah, I really yeah. Don't. And like with Clark becoming a nightblood, like if you think about it in terms of the plot, yeah, you know, like yes, this was about her making a choice not to test it. Yes, on yes, yes. But she could have made another. Like she could have destroyed the chamber so that they couldn't test it on anyone. True. Right. Yeah. So the yes. end result of this plot wise is that Clark is now a nightblood. Yes. And probably the only nightblood uh, nightblood yeah. that we know of right yeah. now. Yeah. Besides, besides Luna. Besides Luna. Yeah. Plot-wise, you're right. Like, she will never be tested. They can't test. So her having night blood doesn't mean everyone else knows they're going to survive. Yeah, and it also doesn't mean anything about radiation, you know? So, like, for her being a night blood, she has to be a night blood, or if she's going to be a night blood, it's for reasons... Well, I mean, it's not for testing. It could be possible later on that it's important because she becomes able to, like, survive. I have a theory about that, and I, I hope I'm right because I don't want her to be commander, and in my theory, it... The Nightblood isn't for a commander flame reason, and I'm just praying. I'm okay with it being for flame reasons if the flame is related to Becca. Yeah, I kind of like true. the idea yeah. of potentially some version of the end of the world scenario involving, like, if only we could tap into something that Becca knew or something that Becca did or some piece of Becca's memory. And then everyone suddenly remembers, oh, my God, we have the flame. We didn't destroy it. Oh, my God, Clark's a nightblood. She can take the flame. She's done it before. What could be cool? And I feel like actually the reason why I'm slightly more optimistic about this is because I do remember the beginning of this season I remember a bunch of conversations. I can't remember if it was an interview or if it was things that Jason was saying on social media. I think it was in the context of someone asking, like, if all the commanders are in the flame, then are we going to see Lexa again? Like, can Lexa come back? And he said something about, like, the flame gets used, but in, like, like for a different purpose or, like, in a different context or something like that. Yeah, I remember that, too. I think yeah. it says it's, it's important, but it's used, but for a different purpose. So, yeah. So, that, I mean, that occurred to me, too, that, like, and I was thinking that maybe... That, um, you know, the bunker that they just got into, that, like, in order to activate that, in order to use that. That's what I'm hoping, is that it's connected to things that, not to make everything about Bill Cadigan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please do. Please do. I'm so bad. But to make this about Bill Cadigan, <laughs> I'm trying not to be too guided by, like, just headcanoning the story that I want. But Becca and Cadigan are linked somehow. Becca is linked to this bunker. The bunker is linked to Grounder Religion, which is linked to the Flame, which is linked to Nightblood. So, like, all these pieces being connected. There are a lot of different pieces of information related to things that Becca knows, things that happened right after the apocalypse or right before the apocalypse. The information lives in no place else except in Becca's memories in the flame. Potentially the other thing I was thinking of is that the if there's like a computer program that controls the the cryo if there's cryo chambers down there or some of the life support systems, if it's only accessible to someone who has the flame. You know what I mean? Or if the flame itself powers it, like if, they, yeah, if the flame becomes yeah, yeah, yeah. part yeah. of a piece of technology instead of going into somebody's mind. Yeah, yeah, so like that. I don't fundamentally object to the idea of Clark being the person that has the flame inside her brain. 
I object to it where it comes into contact with ground to religion and social hierarchy. Agreed. She's the Sky Crew Nightblood. She's their leader. She's the new Becca. She has access to Becca's information and knowledge because Clark's brain is potentially the right place for that knowledge to reside. And I also do feel like I actually think there's something kind of lovely in the idea of a small and subtle way that Lexa continues to be present without it preventing her from moving on to a new relationship. So I, I like that and I like the Becca facet. I get nervous about it in the context of anything resembling a commander ascension or appropriating yeah. of yeah. a so- like- social structure that isn't her own. But I want to be hopeful that there's a way to use that to go where the story is headed that doesn't get into that. Yeah, I think if they go in a direction where it's like a whole new society, right? Yeah. That's not Grounder or Sky Crew. She's not the commander. You know, there's no religious connotations. Like, you know, Clark being the leader of the survivors. Like, there's a direction they can go with that that's okay, you know? Yeah. The well, problem is when it's specifically the commander right right what we're basically talking about here what you're talking about claire is the flame itself does not is not necessarily the same thing as commanderdom or as like clark becoming the commander leader or whatever so it's the difference between like does the flame now become a practical tool yes which is different from what it was before even as recently as like the first few episodes of the season where it's basically a political MacGuffin. It sort of like forces grounders to submit to whoever is in possession of it. If it becomes a practical tool, if it's important that Clark can access it, can use it, because again, she needs to access something, either she needs to access information on the flame, or if in fact they don't sort of retcon the idea that it was totally erased, but rather like there's something about the, the sort of engineering of the flame that is the only way that it's possible to like activate a computer or something like that interface with a computer. Okay. That's fine. Cause it's moving away. If it remains a sort of like Clark becomes the like Pope slash King because she is in possession of, right, because she's the, she's a night blood and she gets the flame. Right. You know, and the, with the suggestion that like grounders have no political will, but to follow this little like MacGuffin, then that's the part where, Right. And the objection is because it's Clark wasn't born into that culture. Yeah. She wasn't born for that. Like she doesn't (laughs) like there's to a certain extent, it's not hers. Yeah. Right. 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 And so it's just it's really tricky to kind of put narratively put a character like Clark into that position Mm -hmm. of essentially white savior. She is here to heal the divisions and rule everything. And she was literally born for this, even though she was not born on the ground. Mm -hmm. She's known about this culture for less than a year. Mm -hmm. That's where the problem is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to reinforce, like Aaron, like you were saying, we talked about this on Twitter, that the white savior trope element of this is actually totally unrelated to the ethnicity of the actors portraying this part. Yes. Lexa was white. Lexa is of that culture. She was born in Nightblood. She was raised in that culture. You know, so the fact that Clark is a white character adds an additional layer, but the structure is the structure regardless. Exactly. The primitive society versus the more enlightened society coming in and being like, we're taking over your thing. I think maybe some of the writers might say, and even some of the fandom would say, you know, they've done some work to try to 
subvert some of that sort of primitive culture versus enlightened culture stuff in terms of giving more dimension to the grounders. In some ways, that's true. But I think for me, it's been at best uneven and really hasn't been done. And like one place this season very recently that we really see that very strongly is when Echo says to Cain, that's blasphemy about making nightbloods. And Cain says, no, that's science. You know, yeah. like what, what we really have being contrasted here is superstition versus science. Those who believe right. in superstition needing to be like enlightened, needing to be right. taught it's to transcend superstition, which is with, driving tribalism. People with reason and rationality coming in and fixing exactly. the emotional other. And this is why it's not about race. The fact that uh, Henry and Cusick is a person of color is irrelevant to this issue. The race of the actors is irrelevant because it's about the structure of the narrative. And what the structure of the narrative is doing is coding the grounders as other in ways that like for hundreds of years, indigenous people have been coded as other in order to sort of like reinforce hierarchies that made it possible for Europeans to do things like imperialism. Every, every time the British <laughs> arrived somewhere, they said they were doing it for the indigenous people. Yeah, good. yeah. No, I mean, like right? this is like, the thing. So like, like, and I feel like I'm maybe... Uh, I was telling Elizabeth this the other day in this very dorky way. So like my, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm in Minnesota for a conference and what I study is 18th century British literature. When I talk about colonialism, you know, it's kind of funny because I think like, I sort of forget, I think maybe sometimes people have a very different context for that. Because for me, when I'm talking, when I think about colonialism, I'm thinking specifically about 18th century British narratives of colonialism which are very different from a lot of other ones. Because, like, the thing that you get over and over when, when like, the British in the 18th century talk about colonizing, what they tend to always do is, number one, they say, we're not like the Spanish, who are brutish and horrible, and they murder everybody, they murder all the natives, and they they force them into mines, and they do terrible things, and they're inhuman, and they're and they're Catholics, which is just, you know, like, <laughs> not just those pagans. God, those Catholics. How <laughs> dare. Know, they're, they're Catholics, so they're also absolutists, you know, and, they're, and they're, that means that they're fundamentally anti-freedom. And, and then they use that in order to say, but like, but we, the British, we are not doing that. What we are doing is bringing you know, science and reason and enlightenment and commerce and growth and trade and, you know, productivity. We're taking that from its heart in England and we're spreading it across the world. So we're going to improve the lives of all of these people that we come in contact with. And like, it was entirely possible, of course, for people in, you know, in England to say that and believe they're doing that at the exact same time they're in control of the triangle trade because human beings are really good at lying to ourselves, especially when you're not like there looking at it. That's the the kind of like benevolent self-justifying sort of like, like the othering can also be sort of benevolent. Like there's beauty in your primitivism, you know, there's sort of like truth and like and innocence and whatever. But the, the point is that you have one group who is sort of like coded as having more rational scientific knowledge, more technical ability, and also sort of in in like ways that don't even like fit necessarily with the world building, also coded as being more democratic. Like politically enlightened, yeah. Politically enlightened. Arriving and sort of changing and influencing and enlightening these other people who, through no fault of their own, have had no access to it. So it's a good thing we showed up to help them, basically. Right. And like, (laughs) so... The other kind of, like, building on that, I'm also, like, (laughs) I have a doctorate in history, and part of it was on British imperialism. I'm a little bit later than Aaron. I do 19th and 20th century. But you see again and again the British essentially dismissing particularly South Asian innovation and technology and understanding as superstition. 
Yes, yes. Right, like yes. one of my areas is like medical research. And mm-hmm. like they essentially completely ignored until well into the 20th century any sort of real innovations that like the Indian medical community was doing, mm-hmm. right? Because it was just seen as like they were not capable of understanding that. And so when you get this line where Echo says, that's blasphemy, and Kane says, no, that's science, it hits a very uncomfortable yeah. place for and me. And the fact that that is true in the story, yeah, that it is true the in the story that Kane is right there, that itself is the locus of the problem. Right. And I will say a lot of this can be fixed. I have wanted this for years now, and I really hope that we get it this season. Yeah. If it comes out that the reason grounders don't use technology at all isn't superstition, mm-hmm. it was to keep Allie penned up. Yes. Like that, that, that alone solves, everything. solves so much. And and we've all, like, I think all of us expected them to do that in season three because it's right. perfectly logical. If like what end of the world is a singularity getting loose for Becca to come back down or Cadigan even now to have been said, like, you need to stay away from technology because that is the thing that ended the world. And like that could, you could very easily see like, in a world where you don't have, where like the ability to communicate with other people is is curtailed, you, that can very, very quickly sort of be, you know, in like a massive game of telephone, you know, the reasons for it, the rationale for it can get lost and only the rule remains, right. you know, so like that's a reason and that would solve but, a but lot of stuff. But it would be a stuff. perfectly logical yes, yes. reason for this distrust yeah. of technology that wouldn't be like essentially religion versus science right exactly exactly i'm hopeful that we're headed in some direction where but we're going to be getting information we don't have yet about what happened after becca landed you know like we see her land we see sort of like a handful people kind of walk out of the fog towards her and that's all the becca we really get and everything else is we're all sort of head cannoning and extrapolating coming from very different perspectives based on the things that we know about 97 years later, how grounder society emerged. And so, yes, I think that that fixes a lot of problems. I'm hopeful that that is the direction that we're headed just because I feel like if we accept the premise that Cadigan was in some way involved in the end of the world or knew that this was coming or that he was in some way either aware or complicit Everything about how Grounders Society evolved makes sense if you interpret it as the fusion of a post-apocalyptic doomsday cult leader from this incredibly hierarchical religious structure. It's even better solved, I think, by that, that that it was like it's the result of deliberate manipulation, you know? Right. Yeah. Like this isn't just how people are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if he knew the end of the world was coming and then the end of the world comes, he's proven accurate. If it was based on, whether it was him or Becca, like a deliberate intentional choice, they believe this because the society was carefully, meticulously crafted to make sure that they believed that and not just because they were like, in some way, a less evolved society. And that could actually retroactively solve that that's blasphemy, that science line, because if if that's like the core of the conflict between Cadigan and Becca... That it's because a certain you know, group of people were sort of like emotionally manipulated into rejecting, rejecting it, you know, technology. technology. Claire, I think it was you who had your original theory about blood must have blood last season had to do with night blood, mm-hmm. right? I think you might actually be right. I think I am right. I and think just you're right. On a season time delay. Yeah. Which, which <laughs> a, a bastardization of. A twisting of the meaning of. Like it was it was Becca mm-hmm. who originally said it. Like how you make night bloods is you give each other your blood. And then that got twisted yeah. by like maybe Cadigan or somebody into a revenge. Yeah. Well like the other option would be. Didn't Jaha say that Cadigan's father beat him? 
Yes. yes. When yes. they were going and that to that bunker. And was a freaky survivalist. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. And yes. so, like, I could also see it being, like, that was kind of, like, the creepy Cadigan family motto. Right, right. Mm. It was, like, always mm. get even. I have kind of headcanon on Cadigan that I'm hoping bears out, but the mentions of survivalism really interest me. I think there's something here, especially from a man who's preaching that technology has perverted the world and is now our enemy. I'm interested in almost a battle between toxic masculinity and Becca's more enlightened way of looking at the world. If his whole thing is, we're garbage and we need to get back to basics, which you see a lot in creepy survivalist rhetoric, Uh this idea uh that we don't fight each other and hit each other with rocks anymore, and that's a real problem for our <laughs> right, society. Right, 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 yeah. I could see Cadigan putting forward these kind of violent, very toxic ideas of what power looks like, what strength looks like. It would be really interesting to see, especially on a show that's done a lot with challenging the patriarchy, both in textually and on a meta sense, having Cadigan be the guy who perverted Becca's work and turned it into something violent. What is the thing written on the wall in Mad Max? Who Who killed the world? Who killed the world? How Nyla said the prayer really seized me. She says, From the earth we will grow, from the ashes we rise, and this is how we ready our dead for the fire. Huh. This is how we ready our dead for the fire, Right when they're talking about a thing that we know has to do with Cadigan strikes me as it's got to be purposeful. Maybe Cadigan was readying the dead for the fire with that. From the earth we will grow, going back to the survivalist idea. We need to get back to nature. We need to get back to our roots and rock bashing. All this technology has turned us into, you know, weaklings or whatnot. Right. Well, and I mean, if... You know, from the ashes we was we will rise was also like a riddle essentially on the medallion. So you could get the key. It could also be sort of like an indication of where you go for salvation because the bunker was underground. Yeah, that's what I was thinking with so the seeds like, too. From the earth we will grow. They're like planted down there like seeds. They're literally mm-hmm. underground. Yeah. They mm-hmm. will grow and then they will rise. Yeah. They will rise after, through the ashes that after, after the, the burned up earth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like almost a map. Yeah. Boy, Cadigan sure loved puns. <laughs> it's a good thing Monty does too. Yeah. <laughs> he was also an engineer of words. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to talk about Abby before we sort of officially yes. move off mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Science Island because I feel like we haven't covered that whole sort of unspooling. Well, I mean, it was terrible to watch and Paige Trick was amazing. Oh, God. she's Yeah, she just broke my heart. Oh, yeah. I got an ask on Tumblr. There's been a lot of, like, I like this person that made a decision that I don't agree with and I'm just, like, really kind of freaking out about it. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. But I think it's important to sort of, to unpack what's the journey that Abby actually goes on to end up where she ends up. The interpretation that that this person was objecting to or that I sort of felt like we needed to kind of unpack a little bit is the idea that Abby's willingness to sacrifice Amori after she had had that radiation vision of Clark and then changing her mind once it's Clark, that that implies in some way that Abby was never sure that it was going to work 
like the, basically the Abbey was kind of knowingly or consciously gambling heavily on Amoria's life. And I don't think that's what it is at all. No, I don't think so at all. I think she had enormous hope and confidence that this would work, but she's also a doctor and they couldn't not test it. I don't know that Abby consciously realized or was like maybe letting herself realize the hallucination that she had about Clark might be prophetic in the same way that Raven's is, thereby acknowledging that she has the same brain thing Raven has until Clark taking the night blood triggers it. We don't know for sure that it was the same kind of hallucination that Raven had because she was alone in the lab. So with Raven, we watched Jackson and Abby watch her have that hallucination. So we know that that wasn't real. Right. And Raven knew what caused it. Yeah. And that it wasn't yeah. real. Yeah. Right. Because there was someone there to tell her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so with Abby, it's a little bit more ambiguous because in the dream or the vision or whatever, she's totally alone. So it could end up being that it is in some way a fake out and she was just asleep and this was a dream that she had. Or it could be that she does have this sort of exact same thing and that there is something in the way her brain works now with this sort of Becca supercharge that gives her a level of like observing and understanding things that she didn't have before. But I don't think that that is sort of triggered until that moment where Clark's like, put me in the chamber. And then it all kind of pings in Abby's head. So I think the fallout of that includes not just Abby having this sort of moment where she snaps and to save Clark, but also now that we're meant to understand that she's sort of publicly conceded to the rest of the group that she probably has the same brain thing. And thus it does open up some questions but I think it's important that she can't make the choice herself and the Clark steps in and that she can't watch it happen. They're showing us like the narrative sort of pushing Abby like further and further and further and further and further to the brink until she has this moment that kind of snaps. But I do feel like I think it's still a little ambiguous whether it's the same thing that Raven has or not. Like maybe she lashed out because rage is a symptom of this thing that Raven has, like we saw with Raven kind of going crazy. Or maybe she just snapped because it's Clark and she panicked. So I feel like they're leaving it a little bit ambiguous with her still. Well, I think it's really important that the scene that comes right before that is Murphy snapping over the person that he loves. I think there's a certain kind of continuity in that juxtaposition that part of the story that this episode is telling us is it's partly about tension between quote-unquote rational, detached, impersonal decision making that Clark is trying to make and the kind of like deeply emotionally driven sort of attachment based decision make making that Abby and Murphy make well I think it also ties back to Abby saying like first we do this then we get our humanity back in a lot of ways what Abby does whether it's moral is questionable but it is perhaps the most human thing she could have done in that moment Abby has found and then lost Clark so many times. So I think there's an aspect where I do think she believed it would work when she was going to test Amori in the doctor way of, of course, there's an outside chance I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure. I think the difference is she did not have a vision or a dream, whatever it is, of Amori. And as soon as the potential came in, even if she was 99% sure it would work, she has almost lost Clark so many times. Like, this is a mother essentially saying, no matter what it is, I can't lose you. I can't be the thing that causes your death. And I think the fact that it was Clark really factored in and then the fact that she had had that vision, whether or not she was sure, this is her daughter. I think, right. yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Right, right. a lot of yeah. people who watch the show are 
still in their younger years of working out how they feel about their relationship with their moms. God knows I was there when I was a teenager. (laughs) I think there's a certain point where the weight of being Clark's mother, of being the mother of this girl who is just constantly dashing headlong, not just into danger, but like mortal peril on the red. (laughs) (laughs) This is her daughter at the end of the day, And she's still kind of technically a child. She's only 18. So for Abby, I think in that moment, it's just, it's my daughter. And if she dies because of something I did, I don't know if I can keep moving past that. I mean, it's it's just instinct at some point. And then also I think the other thing about it is like, it's all well and good to say sacrifice the one for the many and it's all well and good to say, you know, the likelihood of survival is worth worth the chance of failure for a stranger or someone that you know but not well right murphy but, was willing to strap that stranger down yeah totally. without a second thought a second it was thought. only when it was maury yeah that he had a problem and i think like the thing that this kind of showing up is like but but you know but if you're a human being the truth is we all have someone we love most yeah you know for murphy it's maury for abby it's clark and when the chips are down However immoral it might be in some perspectives, you're going to be more willing to do certain things and less willing to do other things when the person on the line is the person you love most. It's the trolley problem. It's the trolley problem. And what we learned is that Abby, in the trolley problem, if Clark is on one track and 50 people are, and all of humanity is on the other, (laughs) Clark is going to pull the lever to kill all of humanity because she can't watch Clark get hit by a train, you know? Yeah. And like, and, and the thing about, of course, the thing about the trolley problem is like, how do you determine morality there? Yeah. Or humanity, I think. So that's why I mean, like, yeah, sure. Maybe it's wrong, but in that moment, like. It's un- it's human. It's human. Yeah, exactly. I think what we really see over the course of the episode, like everyone collectively, but I think really through the lens of Abby, they're increasing reservations going from, fake Bayless to Amori to Clark in terms of what everyone's willing to do. Like at the beginning, you know, like the first go round, Raven mutters a little and Luna is making her judgy face, but nobody stops (laughs) them. No one smashes that glass case for fake Bayless. No one says, no, don't do this. Everyone's complicit. Everyone's equally complicit. You know, like everyone is standing around and, and the camera sort of cuts from person to person. Like you're sort of watching you know, Abby kind of take a vote, you know, like we get Jackson's face, we get Miller's face, everyone signs off on it in some way, you know, cut to Roan, cut to Luna. And then partly, I think, shaped by watching the absolutely terrible thing that happens to him when it doesn't work. I mean, that ratchets it up because, you know, even though they're like, oh, we got to take out this chemical. Okay, now we're sure now for real. So it's sort of like, okay, well, that (laughs) like, but now we're all terrified, you know, so that's one, that's one piece of it. But it also, you know, like, Imori is less abstract than the random stranger because even though they're not all necessarily friends with her, she's been there, she's been helping them, they know her. They can't depersonalize Imori 
Like, Amori can't be a body. Even though they try. Yeah, they did try. They tried really hard. Murphy loves her. Murphy won't allow them to dehumanize right. her because Murphy is a person right. to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even apart from Murphy, like, like Amori, as a human being on her own merits, has existed in their world, has been there with them, living in the house, going and scouting things. She like, led she's them been there. on the team. They would have known how to deal with the dangers on the island, you know, like... She has kept them alive in some ways. Yeah, so totally apart from her relationship with Murphy, her as herself, has like she's part of this team in a way that the random stranger is not. Even without having witnessed the gross, painful, explodey death, <laughs> it's a huge step to go from stranger to person you know. And that's why we see like the second time they're all sort of standing around trying to figure out what to do. You know, everyone is more mixed about it. And yet, Murphy and Luna are the only two so like you know two of the seven right people are now protesting but still you know like Raven Roan you know Miller like everyone else is kind of like all right this is awful but we have to do this and then you know on the sort of the third go around then it's Clark and then I think you know I just think for Abby it's like we've seen her like from the beginning like, it was difficult for her from the beginning, and she worked past it. You know, we saw her have that conversation with Kane. We've seen how even in the abstract, even before it was a person, like, even before they had a person ready to do these experiments on, the notion of it was so abhorrent to her that she was already, like, genuinely asking, like, am I a murderer? You know? Yeah. And so I think that slow progression from can I do this thing to, okay, I'm doing this thing, but I'm forcing myself to sort of dehumanize this person that I don't know to, okay, how do I do the mental gymnastics to try to feel okay about doing this on Amori? And then she's just like, there's nothing that she can do or say that makes it not terrifying and horrible to see that happen with Clark. But it's the end result of a progression that started with that conversation with Kane on the radio that we've been watching like step by step by step by step by step. Abby struggling with this decision and it just becoming more and more concrete and more and more inescapable. And then it all explodes. Including Bayless. <laughs> <laughs> that was gross. That was so gross. It was disgusting. <laughs> Dude, when they're mopping up the chamber later, all I could think is if I was there, I would not volunteer for the chamber mopping. I would be like in the furthest corner of the room just trying to be like, no one look at me. Don't make me touch it. <laughs> I admit it. I'm a wuss. I don't want to touch the irradiated, explodey person mess. <laughs> Shall we switch over to Polis and talk about the Kendra breakup? Oh, it's so sad. Other backpack dad and his glorious popped collar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. A moment of silence for Kane's old jacket. R.I.P. But the new one is a million times better. <laughs> yeah, jacket. I also really appreciated that this episode had Desmond from Lost trying to get into a hatch. Yes. As opposed to being in it. Um, I just, I really like that little moment. And I think that was deliberate. I think the, the writers were sort of joking about that on, on Twitter. Like, I think were that they? was, uh, they were, they were having some fun. Yeah. <laughs> Intentional, like, we've got Ian, we might as well make him look in a hat. Right, well, and especially because in the preview for next week's episode, Jasper has DNR written on his hand. Not Penny's boat. Yeah, and he holds it up to a window, and I was like, oh, not Penny's boat. <laughs> <laughs> So the polis stuff, what I'm what I'm interested in in the way this storyline unfolded in the context of what we talked about last episode about Kane's arc 
for this season, I think, sort of finally beginning to become really clear and being about the sort of clash between the person that he wants to be and whether that person actually is suited to be a leader in the current world circumstances. I think we got another big shot in the arm of that both with Jaha and with Indra. Oh, for in sure. This episode. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really significant that every time he tried, everything he tried failed. Yeah. He's like, come on, guys, let's just get along. And they're like, how about I just shoot you? Right. Well, and that Indra's not buying what he's selling. Yeah, exactly. Anymore. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, and it was the same thing with Roan when Roan found out that Clark was making, you know, like that yeah. they were getting ready to put everyone inside. Arcadia you know he was just like you didn't tell me about it therefore you're planning on screwing me over and Indra's again like you made an alliance with Asgeta yep you only do that yeah. if you're gonna screw us over yep exactly this is a pattern he has too is Marcus Kane makes alliances but does not tell the people he's currently in an alliance with that they now have a new alliance that's going on top of this he old just alliance. really thinks everyone can be friends like, yeah he really has a very <laughs> lovely optimistic view of the world it keeps biting him in the ass yeah i mean i think i think that they're telling some real stories about the difference between wartime leaders and peacetime leaders yeah yeah i think kane's desire for peace and the kind of leader we see him being really skilled at, like, he's a diplomat. Like, he's he's the first person who bridges Sky Crew and Tree Crew when he, like, he's the one that forms the first alliance with Lexa. And during the three-month time jump when, you know, when they're at peace with everybody, we come back and they've got, like, they've got a farm. They're growing cabbages. They've got peace with Indra. They've got this whole sort of network of diplomatic ties. Like, they... That's the stuff that he was really good at. I think what's really tragic is that they're showing, like, he's still he's still committed to those things and he still has those skills, but the world around him is changing and making those skills irrelevant. Like, the world that they live in now, the leaders that they need are people like... Jaha has the ability to get the people to do what he wants them to do and to persuade people, where Kane's more kind of a blunt instrument, you know, and... And Indra sort of seeing the world in black and white, like both Indra and Jaha, that's what their people want. Like they can say what the people want to hear. Shout out to Charles Pike. Kane also, I think what he wants to do requires trust, you know, requires people to trust him. And like the tragic thing is that he, he so like ingenuously just kind of expects people to trust him to take him at his word. Right. Because he trusts Indra and exactly. he trusts Rome. Yeah. So he's yeah. like, well, I trust you. You're going to trust me. Right. And they're like, nope. Don't trust you at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they used to. I think he's he's really hurt that that tr- that their trust was so fragile. You know, or he's right. surprised. Or conditional. Or, yeah, yeah, conditional. Like he, yeah. didn't, you know, there's there's sort of like yeah, there are conditions on the trust that he didn't realize were operative until after he'd accidentally sort of stumbled over them, and then suddenly it just takes an entirely different kind of leadership. What I think is going to be really interesting in terms of the fallout of this episode, um, which which I know. The reason you know it's going to be a thing is because Monty says it. (laughs) Monty was the real MVP of this episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. (laughs) He's the savior of the world. What's going to happen when Roan and Indra and all their people show up at this bunker and Ice Nation thinks, you know, like Monty tells Kane, Roan's going to think that Sky Crew shot those people because everybody is going to assume, like, why would they assume that Indra, you know, Okay, but here's the thing. 
it's Echo who's in charge of those troops. So I still say it's going to be Bellamy. I, that's why I think your theory is right. Like, yeah, I, I think, think so too. We're yeah. going to end up in a situation where like they're trying to get Ice Nation and Sky Crew and Tree Crew get everyone to like calm the fuck down long enough to accommodate as many people from all three groups in this bunker as they can. And Aaron, I think you're right that I think the only person positioned at sort of the center of that triad who can actually get everyone to calm the fuck down is Bellamy and probably Octavia. Yeah, because Bellamy's going to be able to get Octa- or Echo to listen. Octavia can get mm-hmm. Indra to listen. And get Indra to listen. And then the Blake siblings have to heal their relationship in order to heal the world. Yes. Okay, I love this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You have to love each other so that everyone can live. <laughs> exactly. But I really feel like what they've set up in a bunch of different ways is the fact, you know, like the way where they'll sort of like introduce a solution and then be like, haha, JK, this solution is now failing. <laughs> I think the bunker is the solution. I think so too. The problem is not that the bunker has a flaw, bunker doesn't work, they can't live in the bunker. The problem is this whole tribalism thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The problem is is grounder civil war between Tree Crew slash the whole alliance and Ascada is prohibiting any plans for moving forward with who actually goes into the bunker. And not that the bunker itself is going to end up being removed as a solution, but just that like the pol- the grounder politics is going to come back into the storyline. Yeah. Right. And what I've been suspecting now is that like, so they keep coming up with solutions for things mm-hmm. and then it turns out to be completely unviable. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's the, hy- you know, like the hydro generator and that doesn't work. And then Clark has her list and that doesn't work. And then they're still all going to live in Arcadia, but that doesn't work because what they're, you know, now Nightblood isn't going to work. Like, Mm -hmm. so they've been looking for like an all or nothing solution. Yeah. Right. And what I'm suspecting the end is going to be is that all of these solutions they've explored are going to come into play somehow. Yeah. Like puzzle pieces. Same. Yeah. Like there's, you know, like the list is going to come back about the bunker. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, like, I don't, for one second, think they're done with, like, you know, they, they're they just one barrel of hydrazine short. Of getting to of space. Of getting to space. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. right? And, like, they're so close to having the Nightblood solution work. Yes. They like, just don't know for sure that it works, but they right. know that they can make people into Nightbloods. We're getting the pieces of the final solution. Yeah. Like, like so what the, they really need to the embrace... end goal. Yeah. What they really need to embrace is like distributing their risk, you know, like rather than sort of like yeah. going for like, this is the one solution to be like, yeah, all Nightblood of these, fix everything. Yeah. All of the these. The bunker fixes everything. Have a chance, but not a guarantee to work. So we'll like spread people out over. Right. I think they're going to lay their eggs in several baskets. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, we're going to end up with different groups no matter how they're oh, definitely. segmented yeah yeah, yeah yeah because honestly i think that's the way that makes the most sense like if you're if your end goal is maximize the ability of the human race to survive prime fire you need young fertile people who can carry children split up in a bunch of different places from different gene if pools one of them fails, right. <laughs> yeah you don't just put everyone in one room and hope nothing yeah. goes wrong also from like a genetic right. standpoint you're way better <laughs> off having a mix of sky people and grounders mix of the gene pools also it yeah. fits thematically with the season you know if this is about like not doing a sort of like us versus them all versus nothing so having a more like heterogeneous sense uh, uh you know like groups of people over a heterogeneous heterogeneous set of solutions sort of fits with that like we need to what we need to get over is black and white thinking and embrace right. more sort of us versus them we yeah, need yeah, to get yeah, past yeah. that yeah 
Right. So we'll end up with like a bunker and or space and or nightblood and or whatever other mystery thing comes up that'll all have combined grounder sky crew as Gata people jumbled up in them as some as the way to sort of illustrate that whoever makes it to the end and however these groups survive that it's a a new combined society where those boundaries don't exist anymore in the everything new uh old is new again vein it's also a nice callback to season one in the way the this season has i think really been honing in on season one's themes at the very end when they split up all the stations and sinclair has to pinpoint which one of the safest places even calling back further back the the 13 station you know originally there were 13 stations there were different groups of people you right, know in the space was a, coming together know, it was yeah. coming together yeah. Yeah. yeah having to having to embrace more of a just sort of like motley crew of <laughs> people and possibilities so what do we think of indra uh so casually picking up you know like taking guns and then shooting them i have thoughts on that actually no shock please share yes i texted claire about this the other night very excitedly this is another moment of charles pike is woven through the narrative even though he's no longer here Pike is the one who put a gun in Indra's hand. I I think a lot of people forgot this scene. I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. He literally has to beg her. It's when they're in the temple. He says, she's hesitating. And he says, Indra, please. Pike literally has to beg her to pick up the gun. Uh And also that move is Charles Pike as fuck. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Oh, no, no, no. Your plan? It's not good. I'm just going to shoot everyone. That's my plan. That is the Charles Pike move. That's basically, like, that's the massacre in miniature. Oh, yeah, it's literally, it's what, it's also what he, uh, what Pike pulled on Bellamy. Yeah, yeah, totally. The first time they went up the elevator and then the last time, it's what Pike does. I, I thought there was a lot of overlap between Pike and Indra that I really liked. And it's interesting to see the ways, not only is he the person who put a gun in her hand, He's the person who got her comfortable with using it. He's the person who was, I mean, by the time we meet up with uh, Kendra plus Murphy, Pike's very clearly leading that squad. Yeah. Indra has allowed Pike to take the reins there. I think Indra is a person who is hardwired to be second in command. And we don't really see her step up into leadership really until this season. Like she was Lexa's second in command person and so she's i think she kind of assumed that position very naturally uh with pike and now what we're seeing is indra is sort of like leader of this kind of rebel band of survivors like i think it's an it's an unnatural position for her to be in and i think just she's being pulled in a lot of different directions right but and it's not just that indra uses guns she asks for guns for all of her people mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. yeah which is yeah. a huge change yeah and then she even bitches them out for not bringing enough guns. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Very that's new. true. She, she doesn't just want guns. She wants all the guns. <laughs> it's, it's the Ron Swanson of guns. Yeah. <laughs> I'm worried what you thought, what you heard was bring me some, uh, or a lot of guns. Yeah. What I said yes. was bring me all, all the guns, guns, you, guns have. you have. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's also, I mean, like, when you're talking about uh, Indra just now, Claire, I think there's also some some Bellamy-Indra parallels there, because Indra with Lexa was more of, like, Indra was was a general 
to Lex's commander. Bob likes to talk about Bellamy and Clark. Bellamy's like the the captain. You know, he goes out on the on the, right. the field. She's he the like coach. he the leads captain. people on the field. You know, and she's the person with like the who like makes the playbook. And so I think maybe that's all. You know, another way that like Indra in the past has tended to be in that yeah. position. She's like the field general. So she like she's leading the troops and she executes the plans. Um, she's not necessarily making them she's until not, now. Until now, yes. And now, now she's. But I think maybe that's also why she's been. She's always been in the in the sort of in the role of being the person who sort of carries out rather than makes plans. And so maybe that's why she sort of fell c- relatively comfortably into. You know, like Pike is the one who had a plan. So I think you know, you right. know, like Indra's kind of like used to being in the role of like, all right, this person has a plan that seems like a logical plan to her. You know, she's not going to follow somebody whose plan she doesn't think is a good plan. You know, she's yeah. smart, she, but like if she thinks that you have a good plan, then she's then she's good at kind of like carrying it out. But this is Indra, sort of. I think we're seeing like having absorbed, like you said, Sarah, absorbed all this stuff that she's sort of been learning and absorbing and whatever over the past couple seasons, and now she's making these decisions. And yeah, I think I think you're totally right, Sarah. That's why it was surprising. Because we've never seen Indra just kind of like make an executive decision like that, right? In, in, yeah. in contradiction to the decision made by somebody else, right? You know, well, and, and in contradiction to you know when we first meet Indra, I think one of the things that is is sort of presented as kind of her defining characteristic, and and that's part of why this evolution is so shocking is how deeply emotionally attached she is to every facet of her culture and belief system. She didn't even hold Kane's gun in that scene at the beginning of season three. And it's not just because she has a personal fear of them, which I think, you know, like it's, I think she does, but it's also hardwired into this whole cultural belief system that like, my people don't do this. This is not who we are. One of the things that's really, I think, dark, I mean, like, I guess extra, extra dark about, Indra just grabbing a machine gun and blasting people to death, even though it is impossible not to find it kind of awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Even though it's terrible, like on record, like it's morally bad. But it's a badass moment. It is totally badass. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. She's up there with Octavia this season where it's like, I approve of none of your choices, but you are a fucking badass while you're doing them. But also, Adina Porter with a machine gun is the thing that we didn't know that we needed. Oh, yeah. Right, sure, but we definitely sure. need it. We oh, need yeah. more of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what's really dark and foreboding about that in a lot of ways, I think particularly in juxtaposition of what we've seen already happening with the fire burning Arcadia and Polis sort of being destroyed, is is the way that you have to sort of, like, it's already over. You know, like, their, their society and culture as it previously existed is already That's gone. true, yeah. It's yeah. already crumbled. Yep. And unrelated to the question of who survives and how many people, but like the world that existed before is already dead. There's no coming back from the lines that they've all crossed. And not, I mean, like not just Indra, although Indra I think makes that textual in a way that's really sad because the things that used to define what it meant to be Indra don't exist anymore. Well, and also think about like, I mean, she's just picking up what's already happened to Luna and Ilion. Luna's entire world is gone. Just gone. Yeah. All Every single one of her people, gone. Her, like, whole life that she built on that oil rig, gone. Ilion, same thing. Right, and Indra's people are being apparently massacred by Yeah, by Asgard as they go through. Asgard yeah. is also falling apart in that Roan's army is deserting. 
You know, yeah. like their social structure, their sort of military structure is also when when he crumbling. left, po- like Asgard controlled Polis, yeah. and now it's devolved into essentially exactly. urban warfare. So no matter what happens, even if like so, you know somebody canceled the apocalypse tomorrow, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know it's not like things would like sort of pick up and carry on. Their social structure and the people that you know that were their community. It's definitively like no matter who survives and in what combinations and how many of them. Their world is gone now. Yeah. And it's so devastatingly sad. And that's true yeah. of Arcadia, too. It's true of the Sky Crew, because Arcadia has burned, you know, like, they've lost so much. There's a three-way parallel here in terms of the damages done already. We see that on Silent. Silent, you guys mentioned it with uh, Murphy and Amori. No matter, even though they didn't do it, no matter what happens now, the damage is done. They have shown that they were willing and I think it's once you cross lines. I think maybe there's a parallel with the way that knowing that they almost made that decision, that they were trying to make that decision, shattered the trust. Mm-hmm. Use the yeah, bond absolutely. of trust between Murphy and Amori and the and the group in in Kane and Indra. You know, like and, sort of, and Clark in the list and Clark in the list. Yeah, yeah. So there's this sort of like and and like what you're saying about social contract. You know, like right. this is kind of showing you how fragile those social structures and the social contract is, and how much it's sort of based on this implicit trust that can be really just like revoked and overturned at any moment, you know, like really, really quickly. Yeah, like how much you rely on it until yeah. it's gone. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. I also like the parallels of, as in, like, Indra protecting Gaia in the temple. Yes. With Abby protecting Clark yes, in the lab. Yes, Like, there is some really lovely and scary and sad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, mother-daughter moments. Well, and I think, I think the idea that both of them, we saw concrete moments where the the daughter was the thing that flipped the switch. You yes. Know, like for yeah. Abby, it was, I'm willing to do this thing until it is Clark. And now I'm just, I can't, I can't face that prospect. And for Indra, it was like, fuck all y'all sky crew. You guys made alliance with Asgata. Every single one of you is dead to me. And then it's, it's when Kane tells her we need Gaia. She has a role to play that could save everybody. And that's when Indra is basically... And then from that point on, Indra does not question. I think some of that is Indra's implicit, you know, faith in Gaia. But I also think that it's it's an interesting sort of little parallel of that's the thing that flips the switch, you know, is is that they have these daughters that have this sort of extraordinary capacity. And, you know, and I think that for Indra, she's willing to sort of temporarily i think reestablish a truce with these people that she doesn't really think she can trust anymore because the fact that they are putting their trust in gaia is a point in their favor that she's willing to listen to it's also kind of a beautiful uh evolution of where we were when gaia first showed up when indra says to her you were meant to be a warrior this religious garbage. What the hell? Yeah. That's not your Well, and it prayer. wasn't just that she was meant to be a warrior. She was meant to lead their people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting that, again, you see kind of a nice uh, a step up. But also, I think for Indra, too, there was this thing of my daughter was meant to mean something. And this is, if it, maybe Gaia was right all along. Gaia's been telling her. I know this is my purpose. I was called. I was right. I know, Mom. I know what you want for me. You think that's my purpose. I'm telling you, this is my purpose. If Gaia all of a sudden can save the world, Gaia was right and Indra was wrong. 
in a way, I think what I like about this is that actually this makes them both right. Because if she isn't a warrior, but she is the one leading their people, the core of what Indra wanted remains the same because Indra... Indra believes that being a warrior is the way that you are a leader because there is no other framework for leadership in grounder society that makes any kind of logical and intuitive sense. And that's why Gaia stepping away from that into this anti-warrior religious life, like the reason Indra doesn't understand it is because what she sees in Gaia is like, you were destined for greatness. Like, like basically like you should have my job. Like you're the person who's supposed to be you know, like, like I was grooming you to be the person who would lead tree crew. And the gulf is just that for Indra, what that means is, so you have to be me. You have to be a warrior. You have to train, you know, in a certain way. And Gaia, like Luna, is one of those grounder characters that were introduced to, and Nyla too, and, and Nyko, who were introduced to sort of subvert the stereotype that we get that all grounders are warriors. Mm-hmm. You know, to sort of right. flesh out yeah. all the different facets of their culture that are not, you know, that are not the warrior class. But I feel like what I what I really like about this sort of like this kind of improbably beautiful power squad of Kane, Jaha, Monty, Indra, Gaia. <laughs> like what a, what a beautiful Molly crew of brilliant brains. What I like about Gaia being so instrumental in finding this solution that if they can get past this civil war bullshit will be the thing that saves Tree Crew is that then she is both consistent to her own ethics and she is living up to what her mom always wanted for her like this is a way that both of those things can be simultaneously true there's an echo of almost clark and abby more of a season one clark and abby where abby seems to have a more set idea of where she wants clark to go we i mean we get the sense that you know some of this isn't Abby putting her dreams on Clark, but the simple expedience of living on the Ark. If you have a specialty, it makes a lot of sense to teach your child that specialty. I think we got to wrap up. So um, why don't we just go around and, and give everyone have a, a chance to kind of say whatever else you want to say that we haven't gotten to say yet. So Sarah, you want to start? Final thoughts on uh, 408 and or the rest of the season? <laughs> that works. I have exactly three. One is a quick observation. I really like the creeping red in all the set design. In each location, there's creeping hints of red, and I'm super into it. Other observation, Jaha has plummeted right back into cult language. Ah, yes. It's, we have a reason. I believe it led you to me. This needs to be happening. I like how he slipped right back into the same sort of uh, verbiage he was using with Allie. Yes. Any cult in a storm. Yeah, he, he's, you know, it's cult gas on the clock again. And then my third thing is I have a finale theory that I'm going to be super smug if it works out. So just prepare for that. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this is my, uh, it's gut instinct and just a lot of parallels I've been noticing. I think we're going to end up with Clark alone, like Jaha was in season one. We're going to have a repeat of how that all went down, only I think we're going to have the adults be put out of play, whether it's in a bunker. I think cryosleep might come into this somehow. It seems very strange to in- to introduce the idea that stasis exists in this world and then never have stas- anyone in stasis come out of stasis or put people into it. So that could be something, but I think the adults will end up out of play in a reverse of the hundred, the original pilot episode in which the kids send the adults and the kids are now 
in the adult spot. But I think what we'll end up seeing is at the very, very end of it, Clark making the sacrifice play that Jaha did. Something needs to happen. I'm going, given this is the hundred and they love them a parallel, I think we're going to see where there's going to be an option that supposedly the whole group of, I'm going to guess it'll be the main delinquents, so like Clark, Bellamy, I think Monty's been kind of ascended to the ranks, and probably Murphy, those feel like the most, and Raven, feel like the like five most likely delinquents to be taking part in this. But somehow there will be something where it's like, uh, they were supposed to be able to send, launch the ship, and then Jaha ends up having to make the sacrifice play. I think that's where we end. I think Clark will step away from the remaining delinquents because in part she has the night blood and they don't. So she has the best chance of setting off something from the outside and surviving it where someone without night blood would just be toast. I think, and this is, I think Abby's vision was a vision, but not foreshadowing what would happen in that chamber. Yeah, I think yeah. we end on Clark trying to like get away from radiation and just like Jaha, it'll be, will she die? Won't she die? Who knows? Tune in to season five. So I think that's where we're going to end up. Clark's is the cheese stands alone at the end of it. Yeah, I, think that's yeah, where we're I can see that. And I think like uh, we've talked about Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, another possibility there of a kind of like reverse, reversed season one parallel would be if Bellamy... You know, like, Bellamy Clark, has to make a choice that leaves Clark outside. outside. Yeah, because at the end of season one, Clark closed the dropship door on Bellamy. Right, and so it would be... It would be Bellamy closing, closing the, the door, door on, on Clark. Clark. Like, choosing to save the group, the, the group over mm-hmm. literally his person. Yes. You know? Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. already sad about it. I'll be smug if I'm right, but I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, Claire, last thoughts? Well, I think we touched on this a little bit in a couple of the different storylines, how particularly noteworthy I thought the acting was in this episode. Like, I, I felt like we had we had a couple of different moments where we saw extreme breaking point character moments. And um, and I just feel like, like all season long, I think the acting has been fantastic. But I think Paige and Richard in particular – the places that they went to in this episode and then and then the kind of like ramping up and ramping up of where ja- uh, Jasper has been going in terms of his sort of like gleeful comedic nihilism um, and all, all the different sort of subtle layers of light and dark happening in that as an exercise in acting craft I think there was so much going on that I thought was just magnificent and amazing so I wanted to sort of you know bring up that um, and then also that I I continue to just makes me absolutely crazy like i'm going nuts waiting for kane and abby to be reunited if they're not reunited next episode at the bunker i'm going to throw myself down a well <laughs> so i'm you know, dramatic about it and on your heads be it yeah the yes, exactly if yes. uh, they're not together and claire's at the bottom of a well <laughs> Uh, uh, that's all I have. Okay. <laughs> all right, Elizabeth, final thoughts? Um, you know, like, thinking about all of, like, the season one parallels, and particularly, like, Jasper and, like, his relationship to Bellamy, but also to Clark, I remembered that, like, you know, it was about Jasper that 
drove Bellamy to say initially to Clark, like, um, you don't have the guts to make the hard choices, right? And at the end of this episode, like, she made the hardest, you know, like, she made the choice that nobody else could do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even just injecting someone with night blood. It was risking her own life. Mm -hmm. Like, she was, like, she literally, like, put it all out there. Mm Mm-hmm. For their people. And, like, you know, it's, like, obviously, like, they immediately started deconstructing that thesis, like, Bellamy was full of shit. Right. He said that. Like, he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, But it was just, like, there were so many thematic callbacks to season one. Mm -hmm. um, And that felt like a really subtle callback to that moment. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And you, Aaron? (laughs) (laughs) And me. So thinking about the Polis storyline... So I think it's interesting that they called that Becca's crypt, uh, or the crypt of the first commander, right? And then yeah, the crypt but of I the first commander. But I think they did say Becca Prom. They said Becca yeah. Prom. Yeah. Yes, they did say Becca Prom. But I think so. So so. All right. So Becca dies. She goes in the crypt. The flame comes out of her head, and it goes into the possession of what becomes the tradition of the flame keepers, right? So the question is, where do flame keepers come from? Who was the first? So, so I think what I'm wondering is if Cadigan was the first flame keeper. I love that this is like the unifying oh. theory of Bill Cadigan. First flame yeah. keeper, <laughs> the second commander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because he wasn't, I mean, well, maybe he he might have been a nightclub, but we don't know. So that's what I wonder, and and I still kind of wonder if you know Becca didn't die by foul play, like. She right, winds right, up in the crypt. Yeah. She's gone because the flamekeeper also has, as we you know, learned about Titus last season, is a tremendous amount of power. Um, the flamekeeper lives longer than most nightbloods. Has a humongous amount of influence over who becomes a nightblood. You know mm-hmm. that it seems unlikely that the the criteria for choosing the next commander, those criteria that we know of, which is like fight to the death, children. Um, were laid out by Becca, by the first commander. Right, right. But you could have had a flamekeeper, a person who claims to know the wishes and the desires of, right. the, of the gods, basically. Well, and then the other thing is, so they were in the temple yeah. talking about a crypt. Yeah. Becca's body was not in that bunker. Not as far as we can tell. No. So, um, well, and if we she know was, that, that's shady as hell. Like, if her dead body's down there... That's real creepy. We do yeah. know, we do know that commanders are cremated. Oh, that's true. So, because Lexa was, Lexa's body was burned. Right. So ashes, I mean, there's, there's another bit of the, from right. the ashes we will rise. The flame rises, the oh! flame rises out of yeah. the ashes of the body yeah. of the previous commander. But again, you know, like when Becca's dead, whoever is there to explain what happens next has that's, really way more power. Person, yeah, who's telling the story. That's the person who creates the myth of the first commander, right? Yeah. Who tells right, the story of the right. first commander. So I wonder if, if Cadigan wasn't the first flame keeper. That's really interesting. That's how that, that was sort of like, that was transmuted into that. So like if he maybe used Becca and the flame in service of his religion, which is also why, that would also explain why the flame keepers concealed from the grounders that the flame is technology. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He would he he and why there's a sort of myth of like of like transmigration of souls. And why the the flame keeper is sort of the one grounder who kind of actually has some 
some understanding of technology lives in the place where technology is the throne and the shrine and the sort of like religious whatever exactly exactly but then the real the other question then is why continue to put the flame in people's heads True, unless you know, unless what he needed was unless he needed access to Becca's information, go. he needed someone there he could control yeah, yeah, yeah. who uh-huh, can talk uh-huh. to Becca in the flame. So it became a way to control access to information that he couldn't get to. And what better way? Like, I mean, if you have children becoming commanders, oh yes, you know, right. like they're gonna listen to the and the flame keeper is the person who like takes them in, becomes their parent, trains them, teaches them everything that they. Like that's their authority. Exactly. Yeah. Like so, it has the, it has the structure of a cult. You know, the the, the yeah. flame cult, the commander cult, has the structure of a cult because it was actually started by a cult leader. Yeah. Um, to perpetuate his cult, and he used that as the like ultimate way for him. So like all of the like second dawn stuff yeah that was his first version and then he sort of he co-opted becca and the flame right afterwards he would have had time to set up his own power base on earth before becca came down drawing from his own followers of people who would already trust that he was an authoritative voice exactly if he was out around he would have been able to set up power before yes. she came and that means like if he was if he was on the ground if he was in his bunker that would mean that, that would suggest that all the people who survived on the ground or at least most of them were members of his cult so they would also be inclined to listen to him to follow him yeah um which would also explain why all the grounders went along with it you know like these aren't just like regular people these are like actually people who are already programmed in his cult that he just then you know again co-opted sort of becca to kind of to to perpetuate yeah well and 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 since her shuttle lands in polis and polis is where cadigan's bunker is it actually makes perfect sense that all the people that we see her see in that flashback coming towards her it's totally possible that that is that everyone who survived in the area where polis is is cadigan's people and that's why that became the capital city because people were already there yeah. yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So and we know we know from that scene in the first episode with the you know grounders in Egypt that people survived in other ways in other parts of the world. But the reason that this society evolved the way that it did, where it did, was because of Cat, because of Cadigan, and because Becca landed where Cadigan was. So that's my that's my new hunt. I like it. I think Allie was let loose by Cadigan. I forgot to say that. Oh, I think oh yeah, okay, yeah. yes, I also buy that. Allie let loose by Cadigan. Yeah. yeah, I buy that. I totally buy that. One thing that, that amuses me is that, so back in our, our season four predictions, trailer predictions podcast, I, for the, the preview of Murphy, you know, we got that little clip of Murphy screaming at Clark, you know, don't forget that when you were saving us, I was saving you. I, my, like, at the time, my hunch was that they were in Becca's lab and that they were making night blood. <laughs> and like okay so so i wasn't totally right because i thought that murphy was going to become a night blood and but i thought he was going to do it to like sacrifice himself somehow for emory for Amory, and that wasn't quite right but i would like to say that i am i am rather tickled that it turns out that i was right about both the location and the subject of what they were right. doing oh, yeah. <laughs> <Pass off. laughs> like this episode i think one of my biggest takeaways was like we were right about some weirdly specific right? stuff. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like, and not in ways that I expected, but just, like, super no. hyper-specifically right about weird stuff that I had sort of given up on, you know? Like- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like, damn, go us. 
<laughs> if we find out that Jaha has been influenced by, was being influenced by Ali all along via his magic still has internet and apparently never needs to be charged iPad. <laughs> right, yeah. My weird theory that I've held for years will have finally come to fruition. That would be, yeah, yeah. I, would love it. I would love it if he had, like, an iPad haunted with the spirit of Ali and that's actually I really want that. I mean, this is a show where Nightbloods don't blush black. So right, right, right. So, so whatever, everything goes. Technology. <laughs> it can be here. Uh, all right, well, um, excellent. So uh, that's all for our special epic God po- God Pomplex. <laughs> God Pomplex. Uh, we are God-plex. very tired. We're very yeah. tired. We've been doing this for almost four hours. Um, God Complex podcast with our wonderful guests, uh, Sarah and Elizabeth. Do you guys want to say where we can find you guys on social media, Sarah? For sure. I can be found on Twitter at Oscar Miked, all one word. And then I can be found on Tumblr at Nolzian, spelled like Beyonce's last name with I-A-N at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, excellent URL. Nice. And yeah, you can find me, Elizabeth, on Twitter. I am Leave Me Alone. Um, Which is an excellent. I love. It. I, I love never that. Get tired of. It is. Shosh came up with that one. Yeah. She gets all of the credit. I am not that funny. Um, or on Tumblr at Hawthorne Whisperer. Excellent. And thank you guys for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course, always. Um, and we will be back. Well, okay, so we have, there won't be a new episode until April 26th, which means we'll be back some number of days after that <laughs> uh, with a with recap of 409, which is called DNR, which is just like the sad, sad, sad Oof. continues. Um, and then sometime before that, we will have our special anniversary podcast with our um, four winners of our, uh, randomly selected winners of our listener roundtable podcast, Thingamabobber. Uh, so look forward to that. That should be coming up in like a week, 10 days, something-ish like that, probably. And in the meantime, you can find us, as always, on Metastation 100 on Twitter or Metastation on Tumblr. Um, and I was about to say I love you because that's what I say. Because I'm really tired. <laughs> love you. Good night. Good night. I love you. Love you, bye. Uh, okay, and scene. <laughs>